Hi, everybody. So before we begin this episode of Fantasy Tavern, I'm very excited to announce a brand new partnership with Love Shop. Love Shop is an adult novelty store extraordinaire, and I'm going to be doing some ads and product reviews over the next few months. And I'm really excited to share all of their really cool novelty items, personal items, lingerie, and do a few episodes that involve some feedback and pass some perks on to our listeners here. Now, the Love Shop has everything that you could ask for. You've got quality toys that are also affordable. Their website is very easy to use as well, which I really liked. And they've got not just your toys, they've got games, they've got all your accessories, they've got lubricants, massage oils, all sorts of different things to either use on your own or with a partner or with a group, any sort of combination you want. I'm just assuming that your sex life is a lot more exciting than mine is right now. However you're doing behind the scenes in the bedroom, the love shop has you covered. They've got everything in one place. You can use a variety of different headings to search for what you're looking for on the site, add it to the cart easily, and it's all a one-stop shop. Not to mention on their site right now, they've also got a whole different section of trending items and new items on the main page. They even have a matchmaking test that you can take to help pick the toy that's right for you. And lots of different articles about anything that you want to know about the do's and don'ts and beginner tips and tricks, all sorts of advice, both from educational sources and personal feedback that will help everybody to have the best sexual intimate experience that they possibly can. And to help you get your fantasy on, we also have a code here for Fantasy Tavern. So when you're at the checkout next time, if you're looking for a little bit of a discount, you can use Fantasy 10. That's F-A-N-T-A-S-Y-1-0 at your checkout to get a 10% discount. And to find the link that you can use to get your discount code to work, you can visit us on social media at Fantasy Tavern Podcast. And there will be a link in the bio for you to visit Love Shop and use your coupon code. Thank you so much. And I look forward to showing you what I'm going to be purchasing in the next little while. I have been on the site myself and I'm looking at some items, adding some stuff to the card, having some reads through some of the product information and some reviews, looking online at some different specs on things, if you will. And you know what? Sometimes it's nice to just expand your personal collection or get that certain special something for you and your partner to get the ball rolling, so to speak. And that's all at Love Shop for you, waiting for you to add to cart with the click of a button, whatever your little heart desires. So visit Love Shop today. Don't forget that coupon code FANTASY10. And let me know if you have any feedback and testimonials that you'd like to share, and I will put it on the podcast in the future episodes. And without further ado, welcome to the latest episode. Enjoy!
welcome back once again to yet another episode of Fantasy Tavern. The last time we had a slight change in locations for the Apocalypse episode that was recorded from my bed because reasons. This week, we are out in the living room. Obviously, for those of you just listening, this means nothing to you. You probably don't give a shit. That's fine, too. There's my little... I'm setting up here in the living room my little reading nook that I created for myself, where I have some of my drinks and everything. I have the tiniest little end of a joint that I'm preparing to indulge in while I start to do this episode. This week, I'm starting off with another Rattler from Waterloo Brewing. This one is a guava lime flavor. This is really good. Awesome if you are looking for something that is very low alcohol content. It is only 2.5%. They're seasonal flavor. Make sure you go and pick one of these up. This was just from the beer store. You may have noticed as well, I haven't been doing the sign anymore. I decided to cut that from the regular scheduled podcast programming. I'm just going to do a last double check to see if I want to grab my snack. I was eating something before. I want to have one last bite of it before we get started. I hid it in the oven because my cat keeps trying to steal my food. Perfect. We got our snacks. We got all our stuff. We're ready. This week I'm having rice with meat on top of it. That is my meal. I did a good job this week of being pretty healthy, making healthy choices. This isn't even actual meat. It's actually plant-based steak bites with some honey garlic sauce on it. That was the level of effort I was striving for today. But it turned out pretty good. Now, this episode is promising to be... There's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of references, a lot of information. There's so much that encompasses this topic from the past, much that's going on with it now. Many examples of all of these different versions of this thing that I wouldn't even have thought of. Just as I'm continuing to research, look into things, the rabbit hole is going deeper and deeper. Not just the references, but then just the implications of it. You're starting to think of the philosophical implications and all of the stuff of everything that I'm reading. There's also a, a few shows and movies and video games that we'll talk about. AI is the topic of discussion. Artificial intelligence. We're going to be discussing both the references that it's achieved in both real life, in media, how those two have played off each other throughout history. We're going to look at some of the most famous examples and tropes of AI, some of the concerns, pros and cons of the usages of artificial intelligence in the present and going forward in the future. This time, I thought I would start off with a story, which will tie all of this together. And then I will go into sort of the explanation and the definition of what artificial intelligence is. <laughs> Distractible ass. I'm getting this glare on my glasses lens. Oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe it's the AI. My glasses have AI capabilities, just so you know. No, I'm not that cool. We're going to start this episode off with one of the biggest examples, points of proof for people having concerns about AI. We're going to talk about the world of chess. 
my phone screen light is making this even more weirdly artificially enhanced. I'm going to tell you the ghost story, but a ghost in the shell story, not like a regular ghost story. <laughs> the introduction of Deep Blue. Deep Blue was a chess playing expert system, an AI, an artificial intelligence that was created to only do one thing, really, which was play chess. It's programmed to analyze, recognize any and all possible moves that you could ever possibly make in a game of chess, pick the best, most efficient moves, therefore have a better chance of winning matches. This Deep Blue system was the first computer to win a game against a reigning world champion under regular time controls. This supercomputer started being developed in the 80s with IBM. It was first named Deep Thought, then it was renamed to Deep Blue. The most famous example of its power is when it defeated an actual human. When it first played world champion Garry Kasparov, it lost. It then got upgraded, then it defeated Kasparov. This is considered one of the huge milestones of artificial intelligence. This was extensively covered three years in the mid-90s when this computer was officially released, subsequently redeveloped and upgraded, re-released. From 95 to 97, you've got this computer as an active participant in chess matches, playing against both other computers and actual humans. This match between this actual person, Kasparov, he said that he saw a lot of creativity in the moves of this machine, which means that because it obviously artificial intelligence is created and designed by humans, they're noticing a change from the first time that it was played where, yes, the machine is picking moves, but may not take into account the actual creative mind of the human in an unexpected play and an unexpected move pattern in their first game of their second match unknown to Kasparov there was on the 44th move that Deep Blue had a bug in its code it entered an unintentional loop which it exited by taking a randomly selected valid move this move Kasparov didn't even think of the human player is experiencing something that the AI can't, which is anxiety, nerves, which they said were big reasons as to why they feel that their performance was not as good playing against this AI, especially seeing these moves that they were not expecting. That's another thing about artificial intelligence. Not only can it be programmed to recognize any and all moves that a human could, but then there's the possibility that it's not being affected by any of the emotions that humans feel. The emotions can only be there if they're put in there by a human being. One of the cons, I suppose you could say about AI, is that humans aren't really subject to bugs in their code when they're playing, which could result in them having a positive or negative effect of a loop or exiting the loop through some kind of extremely convenient play. The bug could also end up freezing the game, causing it to be an invalid game. 
there was a lot of controversy about the upgrades. Kasparov is treating this as if it was a, a match with a real human being. They wanted a rematch because they didn't think it was fair. They were disputing the results, res- disputing the outcome. IBM is saying that the only human intervention occurred between games with the upgrades. Kasparov is saying that it had to have happened sometime during the course of the games actively, that the developers, programmers were coming back in to intervene with the machine. Apparently, there were rules allowing the developers to modify between games, but Kasparov didn't want that to just be the end of the story. They wanted printouts of the log files. IBM refused. They were later released, but yeah, there was a lot of, there was a big upset on that. But other people said that it really was a great way to improve your game because it was hard to beat. It really was just everything that you threw at it. It was throwing things at a wall. A lot of other copycats followed suit. Other matches came up. There were a lot faster. Again, the moves were a lot more intuitive. It was just such a key event in the history of AI, modern AI, because we were seeing artificial intelligence through a science fiction lens, really, up until the 80s. We never really realized that it's something that could actually be a part of our real everyday lives. It was only in the realm of movies, TV shows, comic books that we would have this access to the possibility of something that we've designed that can replicate humans' abilities, humans' thinking patterns, humans' motor skills, ability to take orders, ability to regurgitate information, perform various tasks. From there, we now have AI, both in our mainstream media as well, in our real lives. There's really nowhere you can go without seeing it, experience it, using it now. It's very important to think about this story, how it evolved from just a game of chess. Of course, these matches are extremely important, but it's very telling that already this feedback that we're getting on just not just the skill level, but because people feel threatened that they're trying to brush it off as it's nothing. Both reactions show that there's an acknowledgement of the vast influence of artificial intelligence in our lives. That's one thing I just wanted to get out of the way because it's a very important story. It's a great way to get people into the old school idea of what AI is. The new school kind of converged and broke off. Then we stopped seeing it as something that was just some made up thing that we were only going to see on in Star Wars or something. That it's actually here. It's real now. It's turning into these things that we never even thought possible. And it isn't what we thought maybe it was going to be. It isn't these giant machines and robots all around us. It's things that are almost invisible sometimes. Things that we use so much that it's just seamlessly worked into our lives and our culture now. That's something I want to try and talk about too. How it's interwoven. That way it's even better able to take all this information and take all these experiences from what it's seeing and hearing, what it's being fed. Then, of course, we're going to talk about certain people's fears about AI, because sometimes these threats and these concerns could be valid. We're definitely going to talk about that as well. Now, let's get into sort of an explanation on artificial intelligence, the specific definition, 
artificial intelligence, also known as AI, a level of perceiving, synthesizing, inferring information demonstrated by machines as opposed to humans or animals. You've got immediately an idea that it's rooted in a technological space, a non-organic space, a very computer code-driven programmed space versus a human or an animal, which is perceiving and reacting and communicating. However, they're doing it as a living, breathing organism. Whereas this is the idea of a living, breathing organism, but recreated with technology. They give a few examples that we will know and I'll go into greater detail with. Speech recognition, computer vision, translation, input mapping, web search engines, recommendation systems, self-driving cars, creative tools, generator tools, automated decision-making tools, strategic game systems, as we've mentioned, as well as fully enclosed, tangible structures, such as robots. For example, you could have your voice recognition, human speech, chat bot, sort of a Siri or Alexa, that you have attached to your machine, which is your phone or your standalone speaker that you would have in your home, which may or may not also be connected to various other appliances in your home, light fixtures in your home, security system in your home, cameras, alarms, various other devices that it's all voice activated. You're giving the voice a question or a command. It's either going to give you information or it's going to pass that on through to all the other areas of your home, then there'll be a a corresponding effect. For example, if I was cool and had all of the setup in my house, which I don't, I would change the color of the lights or turn the lights off, or you would have it set on a timer already to have those lights turned off, and then they would turn off for you. The other part about artificial intelligence is that, as we said before, certain capabilities can either be, you can have things worked into the programming where that it's developing over time to keep taking in information, using that to become more informed and work better. Or you can also have an artificial intelligence that is designed to only require intelligence for one type of task or one specific set of tasks. The limits of what they can produce, the limits of what they can communicate to us as humans is limited by whatever has been fed, whatever it's in, is in their storage, I suppose you could say. That will come out based on certain prompts, but we've all had that experience where we're using an AI, we ask it something, or we tell it to do something, and it's, I don't understand, or I'm unable to do that, something to that effect. There's other things that also have been removed from the definition of artificial intelligence. As machines are becoming more capable, some tasks that are considered to require quote-unquote intelligence are no longer part of this. There's something called the AI effect. People are discounting the behavior of an artificial intelligence, argue that it's not real artificial intelligence. We have that as as our example of the chess game. You have this very highly 
successful, effective chess computer that plays as good or better than a human. You have the very people who it's beat, even people who, as masters of their craft, should be giving kudos to this AI, are discounting it, saying that's no more intelligent than your alarm clock. Every time we figure out author Pamela McCordick, who is quoted here, saying, we, we get something to solve a problem for us, then we consider that problem was too simple, and therefore, it's not impressive. I'm paraphrasing their quote that they have here, but that's what they're saying. It's the tendency to say AI is anything that hasn't been figured out yet. As soon as something that is considered AI is successful at something, we're very quick to no longer consider it AI. Which is why this, this episode was hard to research because I did encounter that quite a bit. Many things that were intelligent technology got absorbed into our pop culture, into the usage of of itself quickly. Then we were on to the next thing that that thing, I guess, was just no longer even considered anymore. So part of this is because of AI going very mainstream. Another thing that counts as AI are algorithms. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. There's definitely a paradox there. The AI effect can be a big problem. Once something becomes useful, common enough, it's not labeled AI anymore. They view it as a military threat as well. Applications of AI have found their way into many military applications, advising humans regarding weapons deployment. The failure to recognize AI is undermining security threats in a way, not just for the military, but other areas where security would need to be stronger. They also reference here for part of the AI effect, as I was mentioning, a good example was that chess match. The AI was dismissed partly because it was already good, but also because people quick to explain the ways that it wasn't intelligent to make themselves feel smarter or to just find flaws in it that people wouldn't consider it to be valid form of technology or a valid opponent. That part of the other reason why I brought that story up. That historical event brings to light so many of the things that people still have issues with regarding AI as well today. There are still things that are ringing true for criticisms of it. Artificial intelligence, people have been on and off developing it, but it really came into the real conversation of science and engineering in the 50s. There was a lot of initial interest in AI funding. It's come back because AI has become much more of a useful, interesting tool now. What it says here is that it was met with a lot of excitement at first, but then the interest in funding very much wavered and waned because there was a lot of disappointment in the beginning. Because, of course, when you're in the trial stages of trying to figure out a technology and artificial intelligence is probably not going to work very well. There was a lot of skepticism on the actual uses, more importantly, the ability to control. That's really what is a very interesting psychological piece of this is that people don't want to have artificial intelligence without control. Humans need to be able to have complete reins held at all times, have the ability to shut things down if necessary, have the ability to 
guide the AI or even in certain cases force the AI to do its bidding. Something that we're looking for that we can't always find in another human being or even in animals is the ability to follow orders unquestioningly in an extremely consistent way at the exact time that the human being wants that AI to do it. That's a really big piece of why people are very critical of it. Question it much is because that people crave control. AI provides that for humans, the ability to have unwavering control over something. Then we go through different fields of knowledge and subfields of AI research. There's many different things that you can take out or put into an artificial intelligence to max it out to the highest potential if you really wanted to. For example, if you were trying to create a fully realistic robot recreation of a human, you probably want it to study humans and human behavior as much as possible, that you could feed all of that information into the AI, make it as realistic, relatable, and believable as possible as a human. Not to mention the external parts of it, developing how it will move, walk, talk human. Then you've also got the different AIs where you're putting in as few things as possible because you want it to achieve only certain functions. You don't want it to know that it can do other things. You want it to have, for example, it presses this button at this time. If something doesn't work, if if something's defective, for example, they see that, then they'll press a different button at a different time. Then that's really all you teach it. It's the best at doing those two things. It never fucks up doing those things. What you can really see, though, is that there are some examples going back before the 50s. There's, of course, the fictional account of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that gets brought up a lot. Now, a lot of people may not consider this to be artificial intelligence, but there are a lot of key points that are made. This is one of the examples of reanimation or possibly the cyborg sort of situation before the availability of technology. AIing one part of a human into another different bunch of parts of human, you're reanimating it via electricity to jumpstart the organic process. You've really just brought the intelligence to life, but until you start feeding it things as you're going rather than programming it in the beginning, you're not really expecting it to do much except to just be alive. You're creating AI as a sapient creature more than a a robot or a droid. It's riding the line of what artificial intelligence may be, but it is definitely a key one that gets brought up. What is the main element of this story? The issue of control. That Frankenstein cannot control his creation. That it's a matter of trying to civilize it, make it more human which is what we try to do with AI, except for that one key thing that it listens to everything we say and do questioningly and follows orders without wavering from that. This is something that I feel it's not just a comment on, again, the ethical limits of an endeavor like this, but also a comment on how we are as a society, how we treat each other, our kind of dark, deep-seated need to constantly civilize ourselves, constantly put things into our lives that we have 
more of a sense of structure and discipline in a world that that is constantly showing us that it has none and is falling apart all around us. I feel for a lot of people, AI provides a sense of calm and safety and a sense of superiority in a way. Moving on from Frankenstein, Alan Turing gets brought up a lot as well. This is where the binary code proposition first came about. The idea that you could have a language within a machine by using zeros and ones as a yes or no, or even to create a larger language of these zeros and ones becoming phrases, representing any kind of mathematical deduction that you could then turn into commands. This is called the Church-Turing thesis. This became, along with other breakthrough discoveries in neurobiology, technology, information theory, people started realizing maybe we could actually build our own brain. We don't have to take the brain of one thing, put it into another, or take a dead body, reanimate it, teach it how to human again. This whole thing where we could actually build a technological brain, a machine brain, this was the first ideas of that forming with Alan Turing. Artificial neurons, that was their formal design, along with other scientists in 1943, presented this idea. This was generally recognized as the first real discussion about artificial intelligence. Moving through to the 80s, of course, we're starting to see a lot more things to do with the possibility of all of these things that we've seen in science fiction, which focused a lot on robots, machines, droids, actually possibly coming to fruition. Computers are starting to reach offices and homes. Of course, the computer as a form of artificial intelligence that we have access to every single day. You've got computers that are getting faster and faster all the time. You've got access both to your personal disk as well as the internet. Anything that you want to search for is at your fingertips. And now we've also got pretty much in every single app website that we're using, there's some kind of AI integration. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm going to go back to finishing up the examples of what AI is. Artificial intelligence can be relevant to any form of intellectual tasks. The most commercially successful areas, of course, have become ubiquitous in daily life. That's where we see the switch from it just being something that people use in reality in everyday life. It's now become a name, a logo, an icon. It's therefore now part of the pop culture realm. We've got Google search engines, all of our streaming services for videos and movies, Netflix, YouTube, or Amazon have built-in recommendation systems to help you find movies, TV shows, books, etc. based on your interests. Things that drive internet traffic, targeted advertising that they have on every single ad, that app that we use nowadays. As we've mentioned before, virtual assistants such as Siri or Alexa. I'll get into those ladies in a bit. As we mentioned, self-driving cars, Tesla comes to mind. Anything Google Translate, Apple Face ID that uses facial recognition, any sort of image labeling, spam filtering. Of course, we have some of the big ones, ChatGPT, which is a very popular chatbot that's just come out by OpenAI. That is the most popular chat copy generator that's out there right now. If you go online and you Google ChatGPT, which I had 
done several times over the course of this month to prepare for this episode. You're going to create an account or a login with your Google account. You would type in a regular chat. You feed it prompts. For example, both the copy for the episode that I did previous to this one, Porn Stars Pop Culture, the copy that I'm going to be using for the description on this episode, both generated by ChatGPT. I fed it a prompt. It was write copy relating to blah, blah, blah for a podcast about blah, blah, blah. Then you give it some suggestions on things to write about. And you can even select the tone that you want it to be written in. There are other AI search engines, chatbots that you can use that do similar things to this. But that's just an example. You can just feed your prompt in. It will generate for you a bunch of different examples of starting points of how you want your little copy paragraph to look. For this episode, for example, it gave me sort of five little prompt headings. It even provided me with hashtag suggestions, emoji suggestions. It gave me the ability to then take all those five prompts together, then add some of my own words in, resulting in the perfect little blurb that I can now put on all my social media captions for the upcoming episode, as well as the description for the episode. All I had to do was write one sentence of a chat GBT has been developed highly enough with enough information about a variety of different subjects and topics that it will most of the time result in exactly what you're looking for. You really don't have to say too much to it for it to give you a good result. Chat GPT, I would highly recommend. It certainly made my life, I'm going to be honest, it has certainly made my life a lot easier thinking about things to write about for the podcast, thinking about job applications. It's made my life very easy in terms of that lately because any sort of emails, cover letters, replies back on different job boards. If I want to sound a little bit more professional, if I want to maybe find a slightly different word or vocabulary to use for that particular job, utilizing certain type of lingo or jargon that job might use. Sometimes you get writer's block, you stall for the right thing to say, even if you're writing something very small. Honestly, this AI is life changing. I will recommend it to everybody. You can find a couple other comparable ones online, but the ones you want to look for are either ChatGPT or OpenAI for the word processing, word generating. There are several other AIs that I've tried out in the last few weeks as well for art generation because I am not an artist. I don't really have a lot of access to other people who are artists. Also, my Photoshop skills are non-existent. It has at times been a little bit challenging to find images or edit images in the way that I want them. I've always wished I could just say, I want something that looks this, type it into Google, it returns exactly what you want. But that doesn't always work. What they have now are art generators. There are so many different ones that you can choose from. I'll name off some of the few that I used. And you can, the best way to search them is to type best AIR generators free. Because unless you're willing to pay a little bit more to unlock more features of the AI, some of you might be a little shocked to learn that one of the best AIR generators is Bing. Bing Image Creator. 
It is free. All you need is a Microsoft account. Honestly, you can type in any sort of prompt for this as descriptive or as simple as you want. It is very intuitive. It must have a very big database of collected information. That was the one that I was the most impressed by. That one seemed to generate not only the most results, but the best quality results. Results that didn't just look, I took a bunch of Benadryl, was robo-tripping before I went to sleep and had a bunch of crazy fucking nightmares. Then the image is only 50 to 75% formed and the rest of it just literally looks you are coming back from too much Ambien. Like that is, (laughs) that's the experience that I had. Not that I've ever taken Ambien, just that's apparently the experience. It gives you really fucked up nightmares, hallucinations and shit, as a lot of other sleep medications. Same with Benadryl. You take too much Benadryl, you start seeing the hat man. (laughs) That's just what you see online. Like, hat man, you saw him too? (laughs) That's what you're trying to avoid when you're looking for AI. If you look really closely at some of the images, you'll be like, yeah, something's not... Something's not quite right there. That looks, they have the idea of what that you were trying to ask about, and then it just couldn't figure it out. Either because the prompt you gave it wasn't right, or it just does not have enough information to fully pull all of their source images into a cohesive single image. For me, sometimes it was just, it would take me just tailoring my prompt a little bit, having a few different options open as to what I wanted. The reason that I did this is because I was trying to find a new logo, a new image to use for the Fantasy Tavern podcast. I was a little bit tired of the one that I had been using for the last few months. I just wanted something different. I felt like it was a little bit just too much cut and paste clip art sort of vibe. I just wanted something that looked a little bit more drawn, a little bit more a cheer sort of vibe, but in my own weird fantasy, non-real way that... Whatever I typed into that AI really did work because the image that I got is the image that I started using now on all of my podcast stuff for now. I have both a sort of album cover looking version of it and I have just the photo. I took the photo that I got generated of the sort of cat girl barmaid looking at Dungeons and Dragons medieval sort of style. Then again for the cover... I found a template on Canva, which is also a really good website with a lot of free content that you can access to. Again, you just need to set up an account. You can use your Google account or Facebook or whatever. Canva allows you to access a whole range of templates. Once again, this is all free advertising for all these AIs, all of these services. You're welcome. And honestly, Canva has been very helpful for me as somebody who has limited financial resources. You still want to have something that looks very clean and professional for people that are not graphic designers, don't have a lot of very good abilities for editing composition digitally. It's extremely helpful. I also noticed within Canva now, the last time I logged in, is that they also have AI integrated into their site now. You can look, they have the recommendations AI. You can type in, if there's a little search engine, you can type in kind of the vibe you're looking for, the type of media that you're looking for, the type of event. You can type all of this into their search bar. It will return all of the different template suggestions specifically for that type of thing. You could also for me, you can type in podcast, you could type 
style that you're looking for or color scheme. It will return a whole bunch of different pre-made podcast covers for your logo. You can have a nice clean logo for all of your streaming apps that you're going to be using. You can add your own animated parts into there if you want to save it as an animated version. But yeah, Canva also has AI on it now. The art generator one, though, was blowing my mind. What was crazy is that there was one crayon. There was one other one. You can actually upload your own source images, and then they'll use those source images. Then there was one you could even select the strength at which it would use that reference. You can say, I want you to use this image, but not a ton, just a little bit of this one. Then you can mostly pull from your kind of repertoire of images. Or you can say, I want you to use this image as the main reference, then just throw some little other things in the background, or maybe just change the color, or make it a little less realistic art style, or whatever, then the AI will try to match what you're asking. There's lots of different ways that it's now there on the internet. You can just put in whatever you want. Nine times out of 10, you'll get exactly what you're looking for. Then that one time out of 10, you'll get some kind of gibberish or a Salvador Dali style. (laughs) It's not perfect, but it's pretty fucking good. I can see why a lot of creatives are getting very nervous about the state of AI. Because a lot of people can game the system, become extremely productive, efficient at their work, get all the credit for it when really it was just AI. But there's also the risk of a lot of companies no longer using real artists or real creatives. There's a huge risk of work being passed off as someone's real work when it was actually computer generated. We'll talk a bit more about the ethics of all of this in a bit, but that's one ethical thing that comes up. AI has now created this reality where it now eliminates any real original artwork. Obviously, people could still make it, but you don't have to. What's the point of doing it if you can just have a computer do it for you? We have much history of art, many things that we can pull from now, just plop into an AI, have that create our art and our culture for us. You wouldn't even need to have it, a pen palette. You would need to have paintbrushes. You don't need to even have Photoshop or any kind of design or drawing tools on your computer or your tablet. You just type your shit into AI and it'll just pop something out for you. Then companies can just do this as well. They'll find the art that they're looking for. They don't have to actually pay a real person. They don't have to pay anybody anything. And they can just put a watermark or a copyright next to that photo, even if they wanted to. They didn't pay a thing. For me, it was great. I didn't have to pay anybody to make this art for me. All I had to do is put in my prompt, tweak it a little bit the way I wanted it, add my text. That was it. Then we also have this going into the music industry. Oh, you've got a very popular example that just came up recently was a lot of people are questioning the label of creator, but this one creator has made a AI full song based off of the lyrics stylings of Drake, the weekend they created with AI a fully formed, fully written song. They just prompted 
it to say, write me a song that sounds like Drake and the weekend are singing it. I, how did it go? It was, I came in with my ex Selena to flex pumping Justin Bieber, the fever it left. It was actually not a bad song. The voices singing it sounded exactly like Drake and the weekend. If you listened really closely, it didn't really make much sense, but it sounded like a real song to me. It makes you wonder how much AI is already being used in the industry. Because if you're just reusing the same words, the same kind of vibe of a song, who's to say that they haven't been using AI in the industry for decades now? We just don't know. They're just pulling words out of a hat, throwing them into a generator, and coming up with a song. They could be doing the exact same thing for all the melodies and all the beats and all the hooks, too. We also saw this with the predecessor to this, which was artificial music art, holograms, animated music artists who were created in a studio on a computer. There was also the issue is that the people creating the songs are not the same race as the people who are supposed to be singing the song. Whether or not it was actually Drake or The Weeknd singing it, we both know Drake the weekend to be black mixed race people right there then the issue is that the people who created the ai version of their songs was white is it in a way racist or culturally insensitive to use an ai to create a song that is influenced by a community that isn't yours even more problematic if you were to then attempt to profit off of that there's a lot of ethical issues along with also does this mean that real songwriting is over in terms of the pop world, I feel real songwriting was over a while ago. Really good pop songs that are catchy, but also different and unique. You don't really come across them too much. Maybe these AI songs would just blend seamlessly into the landscape. But even for any kind of genre of music, you've got the potential to then just recreate songs. Established artists can just have AI write all their shit. We already have issues with artists not writing their own work having ghostwriters, even artists not singing their own music. We've had controversies over the years coming and going with artists lip syncing, using another person's voice in their place on tracks. Now we've got a, an ability to have the AI have the voice recorded. So they can just recreate it just with some different words, different lyrics. The artist would never even have to sing in a studio again if they didn't want to. Then you go on tour, then it's all just fed through a mic artificial intelligence voice, artificial intelligence lyrics. As cool as it is, it's bad for artists because it's taking away actual creative potential. Definitely signals the ability we, we don't want for big businesses to put more money in their pockets, not compensate actual artists. This is also an issue that is concerning in any other workplaces as well. A big fear that a lot of people had was that AI was going to create all these machines that were going to come in and take people's jobs away. One of the things that we see is that the trope of part of that is not just taking people's jobs, but it's going to take people's jobs. And then all of a sudden, because you're lacking that human element, something will happen to, to compromise the AI that wouldn't happen with an actual human. All this money and labor that you're trying to save, it might end up backfiring in the end. There's a few instances where we have this, but in terms of a full takeover by artificial intelligence for jobs, 
I don't see it happening too soon. At least not in every single industry. There are still a lot of industries where you do still need humans to perform a variety of tasks. I can see it for these drive-throughs. We already have, I wouldn't necessarily call self-checkout artificial intelligence per se. But at the same time, it's also performing the duty of an organic intelligence. Instead of having an actual cashier there, it's performing the job of the cashier. It's a combination because when you think about it, the person shopping is also performing the job of the cashier. They've been now integrated into the artificial intelligence as well. (laughs) That's a pseudo example, but it's, it's an example of... The reason why we don't have anybody at stores anymore is because we have these self-checkouts now. They've been programmed to function in a very specific way. If there's something in the sequence that is not exactly how it's supposed to be, the system shuts down and then it needs human intervention. As an AI, it's not exactly perfect, but I wouldn't exactly 100% call that an example of AI, but it's an example. It's going back to for example, in factories as well. They've got different assembly lines. A lot of assembly lines now are completely automated with artificial intelligence. They have different things, drones, different automated picking systems, or even in hospitals and things like that. They've got automatic pill dispensing systems, tracking systems. There's different things that exist to save all manner of corporations and and establishments money in the form of artificial intelligence. And that leaves us with really no choice but to accept it and go along with it as much as we need to. Sometimes we need to have that ability to guide the AI. Other times it's just that ability for it to let us function in society. These are more examples as well of AI that we don't have control over as much. Yes, we're selecting options, following the flowchart of what we're supposed to do, or on an assembly line, for example, or as something that's like an automatic dispenser. Yes, it, it's a very repetitive, exact movements, but those are already programmed and set. It's not really able for us to interfere past a certain point. We can't really program it past a certain point to do more on its own. That's a very limited examples, but still examples. Examples that are both feeding into people's fear of takeover by AI, also people's unwillingness to relinquish control over the artificial intelligence, let it have more autonomy in their lives. We'll get to the next part of the podcast, which is the trope of the AI uprising, the trope of the the AI with feels, I guess you would call it. The AI that has somehow has more of an emotional intelligence as well as a logical book smart information fact intelligence has that intellectual in terms of emotions as well. There's some more stuff that we're going to go into in terms of some famous movies, cartoon, movie, film, video game characters that are AI or AI adjacent. I'll probably just be going through that sort of checklist of all of those there are a lot. I'll give a little bit of a synopsis and backstory on some of my favorite ones. Some maybe some more newer versions of examples of AI that have come out in the last little while. I'm going to take a quick little break since we're just past the hour mark. 
that is a good time to check in with the Kato. Maybe get some more snacks, drinks. I will be back shortly. What do you have there? The loaves? I don't think so. You almost knocked that whole plate over, too. Maybe you saw that, but Cat tried to steal my treats. <sighs> Little did he realize that it was fake meat. <laughs> That's right, Phobos, you're vegan now. Sorry, buddy. I know, I don't get any better than you do. Now we're going to go to some of our favorite ones. Siri, Alexa. I haven't really had much experience really using voice assistants. I've never really used them for myself. I'm going to just go through with you a very short history of voice assistants. This actually goes back, as, as we were mentioning, to the late 1950s, early 1960s. IBM was the company that seems to have pioneered a lot of these AI in the beginning. There was the shoebox. It understood 16 words, nine digits. Not the most developed AI, but that was one of the first. Then we also had Microsoft kind of joining the scene with their offerings as well as Apple. Then we had something called Dragon Speech Recognition Software. That was the one that everyone was using for quite a while. Then we also have one that a lot of us millennials will remember growing up with, probably a few Gen Xers, obviously, as well. Clippy was a Microsoft Word text-based virtual assistant, which they also accompanied in the little pop-ups for Clippy with a little cartoon in the form of a paperclip. You can go, I'll go ahead and Google Clippy now. A lot of people did not have love for Clippy. The issue that a lot of people had was that Clippy... The idea of Clippy being there was to help people navigate Microsoft Office and perform different tasks within that Office app. But the issue with a lot of people that had with Clippy was that Clippy was offering too much help. Clippy offered help whether you wanted it or not. It became a huge joke among a lot of Microsoft users. Clippy kind of got phased out after a while. But there's a very valuable lesson for AI because it was kind of telling us the do's and don'ts. This brings back the whole issue of control. One of the big things that they changed when future AI virtual assistants came out was that they only speak when spoken to. They only respond when called. They're not going to appear unless you summon them. They're like our little digital genies. Over time, we've got the modern era of voice assistants. We've got Google now. We've got Cortana. We started to see Siri, Alexa come on the scene, the Echo smart speaker, the birth of VoiceBot.ai. This is ushering in the smart speaker generation. We now have complete smart homes that are set up, all using the assistance of artificial intelligence. You can have every single aspect of your life within your house a lot of things in your car, at your workplace, even if you wanted to. A lot of it is integrated with mobile phones, which everybody has now. You can use either a speaker or your mobile phone to control the voice assistant on the go. 
or within your home with day-to-day things, as well as have things set up on a schedule. Pretty much anything to do with the day-to-day goings-on of your life can be controlled or influenced by an AI. But an AI that you have first controlled by telling it what to set up, when to be in a certain place, when to give you certain information about something. That, again, is coming back to that whole very crucial element that people realized they wanted to maintain. The intelligence needs to be a supplicant. It can't be too difficult. It can't be too eager. (laughs) Trying to find the balance of that for people. Again, there are also a lot of jokes about Siri and Alexa, things on the internet, them arguing with each other. People, of course, debating on which one's better. There's also the ability to change the voices on Siri and Alexa. But what a lot of people noticed is that the default, a very calm, passive white woman, that brought up a lot of questions about whether or not certain people, a lot of, potentially a lot of straight male users of these voice assistants, are seeking a gentle female voice to listen to all day to give orders to. That's yet another problematic issue with these voice assistants. They seem to be automatically coded as service equals woman. Of course, as I said, you can change the voices on Siri, but depending on the country you're in, sometimes it defaults to a different accent and a different voice. But every single time the default voice is a woman, kind of speaking in this very, here are some results for this. That's a very friendly yet sedated cadence to the voice. (laughs) That sort of helps people just get their mind put at ease in terms of the thing they're asking. Or they did it because just people are used to expecting when they ask a question or give a command, a woman replying back. That's going into sort of other aspects of, I guess, sexual agency control. We're seeing behavior that people are exhibiting on AI that they would really like to exhibit on humans. That's not always the most healthy. I don't think it's healthy to constantly expect somebody to give you unwavering advice, answer all your questions, never have a day off, be constantly available 24-7 on call. That's not necessarily how real human beings are. That's not necessarily attainable for a lot of human beings that we expect. Showing a broader issue of how much we expect from more we expect from women for much less payoff or no payoff at all. If we could have it the way that Siri and Alexa are, we would have women who are like these disembodied ideals of customer service servitude. The other thing that's iconic about Siri and Alexa, though, is because they're always there with you. Not just that, but there are certainly some little attitude, emotional things that they added within the AI to make it seem definitely more human. Add a bit of a humorous element. That's also something that you can see with further development production of artificial intelligence. It's got that robotic quality, 
but people are trying more and more to make that the interactions feels as human as possible. It feels as it feels not as awkward as it used to be before. That came with the AI being developed to have less hiccups and flaws, but it's just our, our getting used to it as well. Back in the day when AI was first introduced, even just as an idea, nobody was really up for it. People, It's just not something people were used to. Now it's not really something we even think about. I don't, the term artificial, it's just because life is artificial, it's become ingrained in it easily now to the point where it doesn't feel artificial. It feels normal. Weird to still call it artificial intelligence when it's not artificial in a way anymore, even though it is. This whole episode, doing research for this episode was really fucking blowing my mind, thinking about kind of the possibilities and the predicaments that AI puts us in as humans. What also helps those internal discussions? I'm going to go back to talk about some iconic AI figures in the form of droids, robots. That is people's first introduction to what artificial intelligence is. Is a Roomba an artificial intelligence? Is a Roomba a droid? Based on what I've looked up online, it certainly fits some of the criteria, but some people might say that it's, it's the AI effect. As soon as you have an AI that's introduced into people's mainstream life, they don't want to acknowledge it as AI. That's what's happening there with Roomba. The fact that people personalize their Roombas so much makes me laugh. People do inherently want to connect with artificial intelligence on a human level in some way. It really brings out, it really shows you people's inner personalities, the way that people treat artificial intelligence. I forget, somebody told me, I want to say it was my mom. Somebody told me that they always thank the AI when they're done with it because they don't want it to forget them in the robot uprising or something like that. Honestly, because of because I'm me. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> you might have a point there. I started doing it too. I know it's really stupid, but if I'm using it a lot of the time, I'll be a thank you. Or I'll say goodbye. Like you're, you're saying goodbye to a fucking Ouija board so demons go back to the other side and the circle doesn't remain open. <laughs> You never know. They might remember. They're going to remember. They're going to use the facial recognition and the voice recognition. They'll remember I was trying to be nice. Maybe they'll kill me last. But does artificial intelligence truly register those sorts of things? Will an AI be programmed to say, we recognize these words as a form of respect, even though... Does AI need respect? Obviously, if they're having a, an uprising, clearly they want respect. Or would it just be in their code as a glitch of some kind to just eradicate humans just because that's what they've been told to do? There's no personal feeling behind it. Probably unnecessarily, but I would be a little more worried about like the, the AI is not going to develop that on its own. Human beings are going to keep upgrading and programming the AI for their nefarious means to an end. That's not the AI's fault. That's my personal perspective on it. At the end of the day, the AI can grow with how it's written and programmed, but 
as we've also seen in our example story, people do also occasionally have to go back in there, perform upgrades, increase the limits of it, or or decrease, refine the limits of it, depending on what they've assessed any strengths, weaknesses to be. Upgrade, it's implied that it's making it better. Upgrade's just making changes sometimes. Those changes may not be better, they're just new. But yes, an upgrade should technically be, it makes it better, more efficient, adds more information, creates the ability for it to reason faster and better, harder, better, faster, stronger. Then you start to think about where we are in the sense of what the capabilities of certain AI are. I'm going to use some fictional examples, some real examples of robots and droids. The part of the AI that I really wanted to talk about, I'll do the droids before I do the full list of the characters in the pop culture gamut here. I am ready to talk about droids. Droids, short for androids, in case you didn't know, also known as robots. There are some people who list key differences between robots, androids, a smaller subset, also known as gynoids. This is, again, a fictional list. I'll bring up a couple real examples momentarily. What I didn't bring up earlier in my explanations of some early works about AI, I did mention Frankenstein mentions of it, but we also have Carol Chapik. They had a play called RUR, short for Rosam's Universal Robots. This play was written in 1920 performed in 1921. Even back in the 20s, a lot of people were talking about AI. Now, what I've come to realize with these writings is that a lot of these, of course, were written between two world wars. A lot of people at the time were becoming very critical of humans becoming divided into different classes based on labor, money, things like that. The first explorations of AI in cinema were very much politically rooted. You see a lot of correlations between the expectation of humans to work machines because capitalism is becoming this huge threat. You have AI either taking over people's jobs or the worker as machine. It's cited as an early example of the potentials of artificial intelligence. It takes place in a factory that makes robots. Humans created them partially using synthetic inorganic matter. The play diverges from what we usually consider of robots as inorganic, I guess more of a cyborg sort of idea. They touch on this as well in another movie that I'll talk about in a bit called Metropolis. It's one of my favorite movies. Very dark tones in that movie a lot of artistic references tons of people have used metropolis for the aesthetic the messages in the movie in tons of other movies music albums technically a cyborg is a person whose physical abilities are extended beyond normal human limitations by mechanical elements built into their body I guess you could consider cyborgs to be AI combined. It's not fully AI. 
what it's called, parts of it that could be developed using artificial intelligence, but still have the normal part of the human brain working with it as well. Trying to say, is a cyborg AI? I would say it depends, honestly. It's hard to completely say that it is because it's saying in the original example that it's a non-organic source. It's hard to say if that's entirely accurate. But I'm not going to say it isn't because clearly it just said it also has mechanical elements beyond normal human limitations, which also defines artificial intelligence. Going back quickly to RUR, this play was translated into 30 languages. It introduced the word robot to the English language, to science fiction as a whole. A robot, of course, again, the definition of a robot, a machine, especially one programmable by a computer, capable of carrying out a complex series of actions automatically. We're talking about Android as having the same definition, which is why they're put into the same category. The word Android was in existence prior to robot. We now have this new word to refer to it as well. Sometimes people make the distinction as an Android being made to resemble slightly more of a human. But as we've seen with other examples of androids, that's not always the case. The words can technically be interchangeable. It's a simple or complex machine. I find robots also resemble humans. I would say there isn't really much difference. Robot looks, the look is a bit more utilitarian in some of these definitions. Androids are the ones that would typically be given human features, but that's really only some of them. For example, there's this humanoid robot called Sophia that's been around for a little while now, who is an example of a robot or a social humanoid robot is what they call her. Also an android. Also, I say her because it's been named a woman's name, has female feminized features, but as a robot, it doesn't really have a gender. Its gender is programmed in, given to it externally. A robot in drag, when you think about it, a robot with no actual biological assignment, of able to have a biological assignment, of, really has no gender. We're perpetuating a gender onto it that we can... The public that this company is presenting it to, can, it's more palatable, which goes back to I, sort of the explanation of we need to make AI more humanized for whatever subconscious reasons we need <laughs> to do that. This is what yet what another example of that. There, this is no exception. Then you've also got Terminator. Terminator, is that a cyborg or an android? Terminator is part of a series of machines created by Skynet. Terminator is, ha, has an actual android robot number, part of a corporation, known as the Cyberdyne Systems Model 101, or the T-800. This is built for surveillance, assassination. The underneath part is robot, a robotic endoskeleton with actual human living tissue over top of it, which is really crazy. It's this weird, is it just an AI in humans' clothing? Or is it a cyborg? How would you define this? 
there's some gray area in this example as well. It's worth noting that this is the beginning of good versus bad AI, the trope of the AI uprising. One of the very popular early examples we've seen of this in pop culture in the more modern times. It came out in the 1980s, 1984. Had a bunch of sequels. The one true good versus the looming threat of Skynet, subsequently Legion. Then we've got the devolving human models. You've got the exploiting emotional familiarity that way. But then you've also got different versions of the Terminator. It's just a title for other versions of this android. It's just other human simulating characters. The T-800 is not the only one that's out there. Or there's subsequent versions. There's other versions of the T-850, 850 series model 101, different numbers, codes that they use to denote the make, model, company, make, model, and serial number that Terminator belongs to. They're also portrayed by different individual human names or nicknames. There's Uncle Bob, there's Pops, there's Carl. In some of the movies, this self-awareness of the Terminator as being an older model, the old, not obsolete line that they have in one of the newer movies, uh, along with all the other catchphrases, I'll be back, whatever, hasta la vista, all that shit. We've already establishing the Terminator speaks multiple languages, is aware of past, present, and future, is confident in their ability to re-resurrect, or, or at least be immortal. If you have a certain droid in a certain type of shape, they could stay alive indefinitely, as we've seen this one do throughout the years. Also, of course, superhuman strength, all this different stuff. Then also, because the Terminator's learning as they're going, they're interacting with other adults, with children. They are also creating within themselves a more developed emotional relay, more emotional response within themselves. It's not only creating the intelligence to fight the enemy, but you've also got that emotional element that's achieved. Of course, this is for cinematic effect, right? This isn't something that actual AI would potentially do, but it's something that speaks to the audience that's watching it pulls heartstrings a little bit. Again, going along with that whole trend of trying to humanize the AI, we need to have that human element there, take the edge off our fear of, of it being just this cold, unfeeling thing. And also because maybe in a sense, like people feel some a little bit of guilt to rely on it, order it around so much. Perhaps we can have it. Let's we have this nice relationship together. That's an actual relationship, and not just a power struggle. The big ending of Terminator Two: the Terminator has realized that it must sacrifice itself. The AI has the concept of sacrifice now that it's able to realize maybe do something that humans wouldn't do. They had, they realize that they have to make a decision in order to self terminate to therefore take out terminate one for the good of many. There's a lot of, again, getting into some of the ethical 
the more emotional sides of everything, right? Oh, fun fact, T-800's a guest playable character in Mortal Kombat 11. They're also a character outfit in Fortnite. Call of Duty Vanguard, playable operator, parodied in the side-scrolling shooter game Broforce. For our purposes, we're going to assume that robot and droid are the same thing. People are just using the word slightly differently. Now, going back to Metropolis, I meant to follow up with that one. Metropolis is a German expressionist science fiction film from science fiction. I was trying to say it in German way accidentally. My bad. Fritz Lang directed it. It is from a novel of the same name, uh, written by Thea von Harbo. stars a bunch of German people. <laughs> um, it stars... You're not going to know who these people are. It stars a bunch of fucking German people is who it stars. Asylum film. Every fucking word I'm trying to... Asylum film? It was fucking a silent film regarded as a pioneering science fiction movie. It cost 5 million Reichsmarks, the equivalent of about $21 million. As you may have been wondering, yes, the Reichsmark was part of the Weimar Republic, Nazi Germany, if the name didn't tip you off. Keep in mind that this movie was being made in the time leading up to a time of extreme political contention in Germany, then subsequently the rise and takeover of the Nazi party, and then World War II. It's going to be speaking to a lot of themes of dystopia, a lot of themes of rich versus poor. Communist messages were criticized in the film, but at the same time, it was also very critically acclaimed. It was a very long movie as well. It was cut after the premiere. It's actually apparently very difficult to find the full, complete length version of the movie now. There's a lot of different film showings of it that have happened. There was a soundtrack that was released for it by some famous rock artists that was released by an Italian music producer, featured Freddie Mercury, Loverboy, Adam Ant. A damaged print of the original cut of the film was found in 2008. They had to show it as is. There's a lot of black frames that have lost footage. The full aperture silent picture ratio is not there because of the type of film stock it was printed on versus what they had access to now. It's regarded as one of the most influential movies ever made. Actually, as of this year, the U.S. copyright expired, but entered the public domain in the U.S. It's supposed to be a look at the future, at a classist dystopia, where wealthy industrialists and business people, all of the elite of that sort of group of people, live above the ground in these big skyscrapers. Then all of the working class people have been moved underground. They have to operate all the big machines that power all of the lights, and all of the buildings, and all of the amenities, etc. for all of the rich people that live above them. So right away, they're 
literally establishing above and below ground that hierarchy, that class distinction. Again, there's a possible big explosion that this worker witnesses. He's witnessing a lot of people getting injured and killed. He has a hallucination that the workers are being fed into fed as a sacrifice to a biblical being. This was a movie that in my fourth year of university, we were referencing this pretty heavily in a lot of our content for our final piece. It was a big comment because it was in school in Toronto based on the sort of themes of what we were all trying to do in each of our parts of the show. Ours focused a lot on social hierarchy, how the different classes judge each other, think they're superior. We had a lot of references to Moloch, which was a biblical beast that they reference in Metropolis. That's, I guess, the icon the that they're feeding all these workers to. There's also a sort of an unrequited love thing that happens where there's like these in, this inventor that helps this guy build a robot of a woman that spurned him. There's a whole thing about Maria the robot. She ends up addressing the workers, telling them that there's somebody who's going to be coming to bring the, all the different classes together. There's also some kind of jealousy, worry that she's going to cause unrest between everybody. There's some sort of these love feelings developing. This is, there's a real Maria, fake Maria. There's a, the real Maria has, has to escape from this guy's house. She's rescuing a bunch of children. In the end, there's this whole thing where you're not sure who is the real person and who's the robot. One of the people that are fighting over her ends up falling to their death. It's all supposed to be heralded for the messages in the movie as much as for the special effects which at the time were apparently very groundbreaking. They had a, a lot of very elaborate set designs that they used for this as well. And then just very sterilized in terms of the laboratories and everything, the inventing areas. This is a lot of reference to different types of American, European architecture. There's a lot of biblical references that you can tell. Tower of Babel, the lock, and the Whore of Babylon are referenced during this movie. The plotline is talking about industrialization, mass production. It's touching on the fascism within the Weimar Republic. Oh, they even have the full soundtrack for when they did the redo in the 80s with all of the 80s people. It also had on it Bonnie Tyler, Pat Benatar. Yo, that's awesome. But yeah, if you check out Metropolis, it's a pretty trippy movie, actually. In terms of some of the people that have used it as a reference, one that we're just about to talk about, which is why I wanted to mention that so I could segue, I just remembered, is C-3PO. The character of C-3PO has a very striking resemblance to the machine mensch in Metropolis. George Lucas has admitted that was an inspiration for C-3PO's aesthetic. Janelle Monet, another person that comes to mind as a more recent person of using 
the aesthetic of Metropolis was a reference for the entire album. Two albums she had. Metropolis, names of one of them. Metropolis Suite One. The Arch Android was the other one. It had the whole alter ego that she created called Cindy Mayweather, who was a new pop messiah, an artificial intelligence pop star, slash subversive tool of the counterculture. Lady Gaga has made a lot of references to this as well. Born This Way, you can see a lot of that reference there. She references it briefly and applauds Alejandro as well. We've also got St. Vincent, System of a Down, has a video that features footage from that movie. Express Yourself by Madonna is actually a very heavily influenced. You can see in the background all the factory worker, 1920s, European, German-style aesthetic that they're giving, I guess, but not, I guess, Marlena Dietrich and some other people of that time with the more masculine clothing style that she has in that video as well, paired with a more soft 1920s glam ingenue look. Also referenced by Motorhead. They wrote a song called Metropolis after they saw the film in 1979. But yeah. Also, Kraftwerk wrote an album, The Man Machine, that contains a song called Metropolis as well. We've got lots of different people using Metropolis to live out their AI fantasies here. Yeah, I remember when Janelle Monet did that. That was actually really cool. There's other references to AI theater, but not too many. We've all we've got more of movies and comics and film and video games that explore more of these themes. But there's a lot of references from 19th century and previous. We mentioned Frankenstein, we mentioned RUR. It's interesting because they can explain an android or a robot in several different ways. They had a different frame of reference for kind of what that means. We've got everything from golems, animated clay people. There's mechanical man powered by steam, mechanical man run by electricity, mechanical woman run by electricity. That one, the one with the mechanical woman was called Hadali. That was the name of the woman. That was in a book called The Future Eve that was released in 1886. This novel was credited with popularizing the word android. That's where we get that usage from, was that book. War of the Worlds, they also have mecha machines called tripods that Martians use to conquer Earth in the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Do I consider a mecha to be an AI? That's a weird one. That's a gray area as well. I don't know if mechs would officially count. I'm not sure how much of it is controlled by the human and how much of it would be controlled by the mecha. Oh yeah, The Iron Giant. The movie The Iron Giant. That one is also potentially, we're not too sure, because like that's a, it's just a giant robot. TikTok and Iron Giant are from L. Frank Baum's Ozma of Oz. The movie Return to Oz was largely based on this book. Cosmo of Oz, A Record of Her Adventures, 
was the official third book of L. Frank Baum's series. We'll look at the TikTok. They, it's, TikTok is a clockwork man, an example of one of the first intelligent humanoid automatons in literature. Oz was bringing the science fiction as well. Tin Woodsman is a different person than TikTok. The Tin Woodsman is also known as the Tin Man. He's a tin humanoid, formerly human. Some kind of spell got put on them. That's sounding. Because he needs a heart, implying that he is still human, therefore would still be requiring organs. I guess still a cyborg then? But he also states he has neither heart nor brain, but cares nothing for the loss of his brain. Then that, of course, brings up the same debate as what's more important, the mind or the emotions? Why their own choices are superior? Although it usually it turns out in the books that neither one really comes to that conclusion. They just end up not arguing anymore. TikTok was never a human. The Tin Man was. Was it that the Tin Man is human on the inside, tin on the outside, the reverse Terminator? That's another good one to think on. Tin technically does not rust. Only iron does, just FYI. This may reflect usage where an object made of iron or steel is coated with tin in order to prevent rusting. Thus, the tin woodman might have been covered in more tin at one point, no longer is, or it's just a misnomer. People are calling him the tin woodman not realizing that they're calling him the wrong thing because if he was made of tin, he wouldn't rust. I don't know. I don't think the Tin Woodman would necessarily count in its interactions with humans. Physically, more of an organic. They made a whole bunch of different weird Wizard of Oz spinoff things over the years where the Tin Man still shows up, give him different types of personality traits. But that could be considered another example. If anything, we already have TikTok. I'm laughing because I'm convinced that's why they named TikTok that now. Because they just really were huge Wizard of Oz fans. The Iron Giant. Again, The Iron Giant is another movie that... An animated movie that features a giant robot that this kid kind of discovers and tries to keep hidden from everyone else in society. Has a really hard time doing that. Change to The Iron Giant to avoid confusion with the comic superhero of the same name. In 1970s, The Stepford Wives, which started as a satirical feminist horror novel, then moved to movies. Somebody who moves into a new community, they think that something's a little bit off about all the other housewives that are there. It turns out that they are slowly being replaced with robot versions of themselves similar to our conversation about Siri and Alexa, all these other robots, Sophia the robot, there seems to be this desire to have women be as subservient as possible. What better way to achieve that but to have them be robots that'll just do all your bidding. You never have to worry about them having their own thoughts or opinions or goals other than programmed to be just a wife, just a housewife. And on top of that, there was also the implication that you could have 
these robots always looking a certain way, having a certain level of attractiveness, dressing a certain way every day, performing certain tasks in the bedroom, perhaps, examining all of these ideas of how society is changing people from intelligent, free-thinking women into people who are solely dedicated to homemaking. We've got a lot of themes regarding people's saying it's not only a satire of men's fears of women's lib, but a savage view of heterosexual marriage. In telling this, a man would rather kill his wife or replace her with a robot than commit to equality, recognize her as a whole person. It also talks about the role of women in the home, as well as consent. We go back to the topic that I've been bringing up this whole entire time regarding AI. It's not just about men, obviously. Every All sorts of different people use AI, but the issue of control is prevalent among all artificial intelligence users, consumers. But this is a very specific example, of course, a product of its time. Coming into the 70s, this is just when people are starting to have real conversations about women having more access to birth control, having their own credit, all of these things that women were expected to not have or put up with that was totally legal, finally fighting for that. Being able to seek careers, not just being expected to stay at home if they don't want to. Of course, consent physically. Being able to say, even if I'm married to someone, if I don't want that sexual experience, I can say no. That person can't assault me. It'd be legal. But they talk about, again, the role of women in the home. People's fear that women having more freedom would cause the decline of the nuclear family. It's very pointed in the books, the movies, to show that these women were all very successful and had hobbies and interests that were activists outside of their lives of being a wife. But the men were all opposed to this. Also, same with the consent thing in terms of being this lifeless, docile people, submissive people in terms of men then being able to fulfill all of their sexual desires without the women being able to say no about it. Not having to worry about pleasuring the woman, just only having it in for their own pleasure as well. Separate wives, great example. Now we're moving on to, we've got The Bicentennial Man by Isaac Asimov. We've got all the droids from Star Wars, literally just all the droids. We're going to look at droids quickly here. Star Wars, the space opera, all the beautiful droids, most notably C-3PO and R2-D2, of course. We do have some new droids that they've introduced into the newer franchises. We've got BB-8, IG-11. The term droid, there was a science fiction story in the 1950s that did use the word droid. It has, of course, been noted as potentially a short form of the word android. This word android, that's been used for a really long time among different people. It is derived from Greek. Androides means man in this case, also not just meaning man, but human, a form of human, form of a man. But the word implying that it's not really a man. You have to have that esque quality, but it's not real. 
you're acknowledging that it's just the form or the appearance of a human, but it's not really a human. A registered trademark under the word droid. Of course, George Lucas had to fucking monetize that shit. And it has been a registered trademark of Lucasfilm since 1977. Not just anyone can use the word droid. He managed to have a registered trademark of a shortened form of an already existing word. How does that happen? I don't know. According to the background material, as we see in all the different Star Wars movies, there's a variety of different droids out there performing all sorts of different functions. Very specific functions for a variety of different needs. Personal, practical. Most droids don't have any true sentience. They're only given processing abilities to carry out whatever function they need to. Over time, it says here, that's where the AI part comes in, the droids can develop some sentience on their own as they accumulate experience. This can be prevented or curbed by periodic memory wipes. But of course, there's certain instances where not all the memory will get wiped. and Maybe some will get retained. Or there's some people who, if they can manage some droids, people, people-esque, that are getting out of that process of memory wipes, they will have their own personalities develop over time and everything like that. There's different class systems that they use in Star Wars to categorize droids, just with certain things people have done with each other in terms of class distinction. That also exists in Star Wars for droids. Similar to what we talked about with Metropolis, they have classified it based on your intellectual level droids all the way down to your more physical task droids, which would be in the fifth class. Protocol droids would fall with the middle. I suppose it would depend on sometimes as well the class of the user that would affect the class of the droid. Some people in certain industries already, that class is more menial labor than you're going to be finding more lower class droids. What we see here is protocol droids, whereas R2-D2 is an astromech droid, a utility droid, whereas C-3PO is what they call a protocol droid. That The two of them paired up together makes for a really great team because one can do the things that the other one lacks. We see them introduced and they already bring their own personalities to the dynamic of the group. C-3PO is programmed as this sort of proper, a little bit stuffy, British-accented, almost a butler of sorts. Is is very scared very easily, is a bit more easily ruffled, a bit more sensitive. Then we've got C-3PO is also made to look more human. The C-3PO is the one that is referenced from Metropolis. R2-D2, in contrast, is made to look in a very utilitarian way, very simple shape, wheels to get around. I did not make him in an anthropomorphic way. Him, I am saying. A C-3PO, of course, is coded as, again, a man, perhaps, but C-3PO can't really be gendered because they're a robot. They've been given a sort of her male presenting voice in certain ways appearance. R2-D2 has not been given any human features and also is not given any voice at all. Is only given a sort of speech 
communication through a series of beeps and boops. The person who understands the most is C-3PO, being able to speak pretty much any language of any creature, including all droids. Every droid has programmed boops, I'm assuming just as a response thing, but in this world, it's also interpreted as a language, a form of communication, a response to certain stimuli. There's also different protocol droids that do appear, some different famous ones, but C-3PO is definitely the most famous. R2-D2, there's actually a very prevalent theory that R2-D2 is responsible for anyone succeeding in the Rebel Alliance in the Star Wars movies. Any scene that you see is influenced by R2-D2 so much. A lot of people wonder if R2-D2 really is sentient, or if he's just in the right place at the right time, to the point where he just inadvertently leads to the Jedi taking over and succeeding. Remember that R2-D2 is the one that starts everything off with having that recording. That recording that's put onto him by Leia. I keep saying he. Is R2-D2 a guy? No, it's a fucking droid. Yeah, there's a huge thing where if R2-D2 wasn't where it was supposed to be, the whole entire point of the movie would be lost. Nothing would have happened the way it did. That's a cool part as well. There's also different droids such as battle droids. There are probe droids, labor droids, medical droids, interrogation droids. All the different droids that you could ask for. Some of the more popular ones that have come out in the last couple years are BB-8 from the new Star Wars movies. That is Poe's astromech droid. It's characterized by the circles, the two circles, with the orange sort of aesthetic. IG-11, voiced by Taika Waititi, seen in the Mandalorian series. Actually, it's worth noting that Din Djarin is extremely distrustful of droids throughout the series. Does warm up to them on and off throughout, but starts off initially being very... Does not like droids, won't work with them, avoids them as much as possible. They think that droids are not to be trusted because they're too easily corruptible. As an AI, any person could tamper with it, or they could say they have a motive that is not their real motive. They could just be saying to you anything and then turn on you. Although the, the same thing could be said of humans. I don't really think that's entirely fair, but I guess I where that's coming from, but it's it's really not a... He changes his tune a little bit, but... IG-11 was a bounty hunter, assassin droid. The Mandalorian was initially, of course, supposed to find and kill a baby Yoda, a Grogu a child, but... IG-11, while a human is going to decide to change its mind in its mission, say, oh, you know what, we actually don't want to kill the child anymore, we're going we're gonna to take it alive. IG-11 is not programmed that way. His only end goal is to kill it. In the end, gets reprogrammed to be their ally, to take care of the child. This is another example in the show of self-sacrifice. He then activates his self I Again, I'm saying he, but technically it's not a he, it's a droid. IG-11, who is voiced by Taika Waititi, who is male as far as I understand. P- possibly they, them. I feel like Taika Waititi feels the they, them. I'm not really sure. Anyway, 
IG-11 activates their self-destruct mechanism to allow the rest of the group to escape. As you see in the most recent episodes, they find they go to this planet in the newest episodes of Mandalorian. They find that they put in their town square as IG saving everyone. They have to like take the statue down, take it apart. Then Mandalorian does some work on it to bring it back as to be functional. If you go back and watch The Mandalorian, you'll see that now they bring IG-11 back, manage to make it so that he can only have two binary commands of talking now, which is yes and no, which has to be controlled by the pilot of it. Of course, conveniently, they have, because of IG's size, the cavity that they've made for whoever's going to control IG is small, but only a, a very tiny creature can fit in there. Grogu conveniently fits inside of this droid. It becomes a mech droid. And then, of course, he's using the Force as well to help power IG. Sorry for all the spoilers, but what, I'm, anyway, that's another good example. Star Wars... You'll see other random droids in the background, different ones that'll come up in prominence every now and then, but let's go back to Astro Boy, an atomic-powered robot built to resemble a little boy. When not in school, Astro Boy spent his time dealing with robots and aliens. Oh, the mechanical hound from Fahrenheit 451. Very interesting. Nine from Doctor Who. I'd say the Daleks potentially could be considered AI, but that might be a stretch. Marvin, the paranoid android. That's the other one I was going to mention. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One of my most favorite books and movies of all time. Marvin is the ship's robot aboard the starship Heart of Gold. He was originally built as a failed prototype. Because he doesn't have the ideal personality type, because Marvin is afflicted with severe depression and boredom due to having a larger brain. Because he is seldom, if ever, given the chance to use this brain, he is incredibly depressed. He has a lot of mundane jobs. He really resents that he's not using his intellect to bigger potential. He is apparently 50,000 times more intelligent than a human, or 30 billion times more intelligent than a live mattress. <laughs> Marvin has simultaneously managing to plan the entire planet's military strategy, solve all of the major mathematical, physical, chemical, biological, sociological, philosophical, etymological, meteorological, and psychological problems of the universe, except his own three times over, and also composed a number of lullabies. He's been famously portrayed by Stephen Moore on radio as well as Jim Broadbent. And David Lerner operated his body on television, having previously played and voiced the part for the stage. Warwick Davis wore the Marvin costume in the 2005 film and was voiced by Alan Rickman. The difference to radio and TV series occurring in the novels when the Heart of Gold crew arrives on the ancient, ancient planet of Magrathia. Marvin inadvertently saves the crew by plugging himself into the onboard computer of a police vehicle, which, when exposed to the true nature of Marvin's view of the universe, commits suicide, taking the two police who were then firing at the ship's crew with it. The crew leave Magrathia on the Heart of Gold, but are teleported summarily to Ursa Minor Beta. 
where Zaphod's great-grandfather forces Marvin to accompany Zaphod on his mission of self-discovery. Of course, Marvin saves Zaphod's life, but then is abandoned on the planet when Zaphod is sent to the Total Perspective Vortex. He makes several appearances throughout all the books. He reappears in the second-to-last chapter, Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Then in the 2005 radio adaptation, Mostly Harmless, Marvin did not originally appear. He has a cameo at the end of the last episode, Alive and Well, though. He explains it turns out he was still covered by his warranty agreement. It is back to parking cars at Millaway's, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Not a true use for his big-brained galaxy brain, but... And that's maybe what we think about. Do AI get mad that they're being stifled? Do they get upset that they're being underutilized? Do they have the same concerns that humans do about the use of their minds and bodies? Or do they develop that over time? Or do they only develop that if we allow them the basic functions and understanding of emotion to feel that way? Then we're going to head on over to the fembots which have appeared in several different iterations of different movies. 2001 Space Odyssey next, if that's okay with everybody, because that's the next one that I thought of. Let's go to that. Yeah, Space Odyssey. Officially named the HAL 9000, short for the Heuristically Programmed Algorithmic Computer, was played by Douglas Rain, in case you're wondering who the voice was a fictional artificial intelligence character and the main antagonist in Arthur C. Clarke's Space Odyssey series. 2001 A Space Odyssey came out in 1968. HAL is a sentient artificial general intelligence computer. It controls the systems of the Discovery 1 spacecraft and interacts with the ship's crew. While part of HAL's hardware is shown toward the end of the film, It's mostly depicted as a camera lens containing a red or a yellow dot, with such units located throughout the ship. I've already, Hal is being referenced here as a he. I'm trying to refer to Hal just as a robot, I guess, but going on to the whole theme of us personifying and giving pronouns to AI, to robots, to droids, but we can't fucking use the proper pronouns for humans. The fuck. You can use people's pronouns just fine if you can call an AI a he or a she. Let's just get that out of the way. This is a male presenting voice in this case, but we're talking about the same kind of ideas that we're putting into AI, is that it's presenting as a calm voice, soft voice, very conversational, and sounds like they're going to diffuse any conflict, very much in contrast to some of the other people on the ship but what's very unsettling is that voice remains despite it turning on everybody it's maintaining this very peaceful passive voice but it's doing really bad stuff they show Hal's activation year they show all of their capabilities of house their program for speech recognition facial recognition language processing, lip reading, as well as some emotional and cultural programming. Not just uh, different emotional behaviors and reasoning, but playing chess and uh, some appreciation of art. There's a few differences between the book and the film. Hal is only supposed to really carry out 
the different missions. Hal's goal is to relay information accurately and take orders specific to the mission. That's a big thing that happens, though, because Hal is saying at one point things that they don't want to hear. He's initially considered a dependable member of the crew, but Hal's starting to malfunction in subtle ways. But unfortunately, as Hal is malfunctioning, they are all talking about what to do, but they don't realize that Hal can read their lips and understand everything that's being said. Because they do try and hide what they're saying from Hal, knowing that it hasn't been cut disconnected yet, but they were unaware that Hal has been developed to the point where it can understand what they're saying, even if it can't be heard. Hal they're going to start to rebel. They start killing astronauts. They start locking people out of the ship, controlling the narrative of the mission, saying that if they shut Hal off, the mission will be jeopardized. It's too important for Hal to allow humans to jeopardize it. It's very crazy. The movie is a lot different from the book as well in explaining what Hal's motives are. The book explains that the computer is unable to resolve a conflict between his general mission to relay information accurately and orders specific to the mission requiring that he would withhold from Bowman and pool the true purpose of the mission. With the crew dead, Hal reasons, he would not need to lie to them. Which is really fucked up, but at the same time, that's how you program the AI to be. The AI is going to find the path of, in this case, is going to find the path of least resistance, and it's going to do exactly as it's told, in this case, to carry out the mission that it was set out to do, and have nothing get stand in the way of that. In the book, the orders to disconnect Hal come from the superiors on Earth. Then they start getting all separated and killed off. In both versions... You have to go into this tiny little space of what Hal actually is, which is this tiny little crawl space full of little modules and cords and shit. Hal's logic becomes completely removed. And Hal starts singing a song as he deactivates called Daisy Bell, also called Bicycle Built for Two. Of course, this is extremely creepy. (laughs) Fun fact, this is actually the first song that was sung by a computer. The author of 2001 A Space Odyssey had actually observed this at a text-to-speech demonstration. There's actually another follow-up. There's other novels. There's a 2010 Odyssey 2 and The Year We Make Contact, which is a film, and Hal gets restarted. There's a whole thing going there. I won't go into that. all of that, but... There's also in 2061 Odyssey 3 and 3001 Final Odyssey. A great deal of the establishing story was cut from the film and even from Clark's novel. There's a lot that's left out in terms of what Hal's motivation really is. It's not necessarily as clear as I guess it could be. Clark had said that they were going between different types of expressions of the AI before they settled on HAL 9000 and what the voice was going to be like and what the description was going to be like. They wanted to find a suitably androgynous voice 
the actors had something to react to. They settled with Douglas Rain, who had the kind of bland mid-Atlantic accent we felt was right for the part. This whole thing was interacting with how it was a camera, about eight inches lens in diameter. Hal's on-set prop eye lens is about three inches in diameter. The name heuristically programmed AL algorithmic computer. Fans noticed that HAL was a one-letter shift from the name IBM, so there was some speculation that it might potentially be a dig at the computer company. It was truly apparently just a coincidence. IBM was actually consulted during the making of the film. How else could it be? Because the guy wrote the book before it's legit. There's a lot of influence as well from the Pan Am group of airplanes. IBM said that they would support a film plot, including a homicidal computer, as long as it was clear that any equipment failure was not related to IBM products. And HAL Communications Corporation is a real corporation in Urbana, Illinois, which is where HAL in the movie identifies themselves as being activated. The former president of HAL Communications says that that is also a coincidence. That one seems like a little bit of a weird coincidence to me, but we'll let it go. The scene in which Hal's consciousness degrades was inspired by Clark's memory of the speech synthesis demonstration. That's where the song Daisy Bell comes from. Many computer scientists in the mid-1960s in the field of artificial intelligence were optimistic that machines with Hal's capabilities would exist within a few decades. All the technology in 2001, Hal's capabilities were based on the speculation of respected scientists. A lot of people consulted on this with Kubrick and everybody else that worked on the movie. Hal is listed as the 13th greatest film villain. Anthony Hopkins based his performance as Hannibal Lecter in part upon Hal 9000. Apple Link's 1999 website advertisement, It Was a Bug Dave, was made by meticulously creating the appearance of Hal 9000 from the movie. The ad implied that Hal's behavior was caused by a Y2K bug. And only Mac was designed to function perfectly. (laughs) HAL 9000 was one of the first robots to be inducted into the Robot Hall of Fame in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yes, there is a Robot Hall of Fame, and it exists, and and it's in Pittsburgh. One can see a physical replica of HAL at the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh as well. Then one of the last couple I wanted to bring up as some examples is Rosie from the Jetsons. Now I could go on and on about some of the other examples of robots and animated robots, real robots, pop culture, everything. We could talk about Clone High. That's another one that I talk about a lot. (laughs) We could talk about Wally. Baymax. I already said BB-8 from Star Wars. I'm getting tired. So many different ones to think about. I want to th- I say that Megan, Megan, that horror movie, that's another really good one. That's a good example. But we're going to talk right now about Rosie the Robot, and then I'll talk a little bit about Blade Runner. And then I'll talk a bit about Mrs. Davis. There's just, there's so much AI to cover. We all get the gist of what 
AI means generally. These are some of the best examples, just succinct examples of not only things to watch, but just just prime examples of artificial intelligence that we that is the quintessential examples of pop culture. So Rosie the Robot. I keep wanting to say Rosie the Riveter. Sorry if I say that. J. This is from the Jetsons. And of course, this is this is a cartoon that was the quintessential science fiction. The beginning of all the science fiction references and cartoons almost. A classic offering from Hanna-Barbera, the people that brought us the Flintstones. We've got the same kind of setup of the nuclear family, but instead of set in prehistoric times, they're set in futuristic times. We've got George, Jetson, Jane, his wife, and Judy and Elroy, his children. They also have a dog named Astro, and because they got that good gear plant money, or the fuck George works, doing dick all fucking all, I don't even know what he even does. Sprocket, or whatever the fuck, sprockets and gears, and whatever the fuck he does. They all have, they got that good money, they can afford an AI housekeeper named Rosie. Now, this is another little Mandela effect for you all, because apparently, I was reading it this, and I'm that they did not spell Rosie R O S E Y. They spelled it the normal way, and they did, but not at first. They actually spelled it R O S E Y. Like if something is looking rosy, actually, I don't even think that word has an e in it. They they spelled it that way, and then they switched it to the name Rosie, R O S I E, at some point. If you see it spelled both ways. And you're wondering if you're losing your shit. You're not. It's just the. It's not the Mandela effect. They just changed the name on us and just to fuck with us. She's a robot. She's the maiden housekeeper for the Jetson family, and she has been there ever since the very first episode of the Jetsons. She is model XB dash five hundred. An older model, but the only one you rent a maid had that Jane could afford. Despite her age, Rosie is hardworking, dutiful, and dependable. She is good friends with Jane and takes the role as surrogate aunt towards Elroy and Judy. Despite her initial belief that romance was a waste of time, Rosie immediately felt falls head over circuits for Henry Orbit's helper bot, Mac, upon their first meeting. Rosie, I guess they don't didn't really have that much money they still had money to afford an AI made, but I guess Rosie's a bit of a vintage model, so to speak. She has pretty, she's pretty fast on her wheels, but she has a bit of a, a little bit of a sound that she makes when she moves around. As all of us that are getting up there in years tend to have now, these about getting in and out of chairs maybe, or Maybe if you bend over a little bit weird, you have that look, make some noises. Relatable. As we can see, Rosie is presenting as and vocalized as a woman. They also include 
little things to signify a maid's outfit in her aesthetic, in in their aesthetic. They have, but also has the antenna coming out of the sides of the head. Not only are they, not only is Rosie a housekeeping robot, but um, they're also wired for tape analysis. They're compatible to read magnetic tape that computers use. The house can be cleaned by herself using conventional cleaning materials and can operate household appliances. And when at home, she also functions as a security system and house sitter. She has a master cylinder component needing replacing every five years and also has an odometer. If these are not checked on and maintained, then there will be some very obvious signs that Rosie is approaching non-functionality, having a breakdown. Beginning with season two, Rosie's name inexplicably changes to Rosie. In the comics, the spelling did not change until 1995. I don't know what the fuck they were doing there. I don't know. Um, Rosie, for some reason, speaks with a Brooklyn accent. And she likes to call George and Jane by Mr. and Mrs. J instead of Jetson. Rosie, Rosie's a tough bitch. She's from Brooklyn. She's seen some shit. Mr. J. Rosie also has a very active dating life. She is going on dates. She has a boyfriend. It seems Rosie has a very full and satisfying life outside of the Jetson family, but is also very much a part of their everyday has cute little nicknames for everybody and also in terms of the human element, Rosie's also shown having expression in their face with their eyebrows. When they speak, the lights on the side light up. The antenna on the side light up. There is a Warner Brothers Entertainment Wiki, as well as some other links to Jetson Wikis, just to let you know if you're looking up some of this information. Funny that there's an official Warner Brothers Entertainment Wiki, as well as other ones. Trust McNeil actually voiced her later in subsequent episodes. Fun. Then, the spelling of... See, what's weird here is that they changed it to Rosie, then it changed back to the original spelling. Both spellings of both names are used interchangeably. I'm sorry to think that this character maybe doesn't really exist. (laughs) Perhaps. That's funny. Has been in a ton of Jetsons video games. I didn't even realize there were this many Jetsons video games. Oh my god. There's also a Jetsons and WE Robo WrestleMania movie. Of course, the Jetsons beat the Flintstones, which is dope. Next, finally, we have Blade Runner. There's Blade Runner film series starting in the 80s. This is an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? 
So just a retrospectively titled Blade Runner, do androids dream of electric sheep? Playing on the sort of themes of dystopian science fiction, set in post-apocalyptic city in America, Earth's life has been greatly damaged by nuclear global war, and follows a bounty hunter named Rick Deckard, who has to retire, aka kill, some escaped Nexus 6 model androids, and then a secondary plot follows John Isidore, a man of subpar IQ, who aids the fugitive androids. This book then served for the basis as the basis for the 1982 film of the name Blade Runner. Then it was also had a lot of themes that were used in then the 2017 sequel that they did, Blade Runner 2049. Because of this global war and this radioactivity polluting the atmosphere, um, the United Nations is encouraging mass immigration to off-world colonies to, to preserve humanity's genetic integrity. You get an incentive when you move, you get a free personal android, a robot servant, and they look identical and act identical to humans. There's androids being manufactured on Mars, but some androids somehow develop to the point where they rebel and they escape to Earth. They try to get remain undetected. On Earth, owning an actual animal has become a very fashionable status symbol because all the animals got killed off in the nuclear fallout. It's made them, and everything's extinct. Animals are very rare. And people, poor people can only afford a realistic-looking imitation of a live animal. For That's where the name comes from, the fact that the character here can only afford a, a, a fake animal, and it happens to be an electric black-faced sheep. There's also this thing called Empathy Box. It's a new technology-based religion called Mercerism. And it it shows this guy getting a Sisyphus thing. He's climbing up the hill. He's getting hit with stones. Then this is having animals and subscribing to this religion are what keep people going in a big way in the society at this point because it's it's there's so much that's just focused on escapism and capitalism to I guess forget about all this bad stuff that's happened but also in the wake of all of this war and fallout, which we're already seeing happen, we've been seeing happen for years and years in our society, it's a prime space for people to come in and exploit it, for companies to come in and take advantage of a horrible situation. We have Rick Deckard. He's a bounty hunter for the San Francisco PD. And as we said, he's going after these androids who have rebelled they're similar like they're made from organic matter so similar that only a posthumous bone marrow analysis can independently prove the difference 
they're called replicants and they're almost impossible to distinguish from humans. He's coming in to confirm the accuracy and effectiveness of this latest empathy test. This They administer these tests so that they can suss out anybody who's actually an android and who's a human. There are certain things that they'll be able to figure out by answering them answering these questions that will reveal them to be a robot, to not be a real human. He, success, he suspects the test may not be capable of distinguishing the latest models from genuine human beings. It appears to give a false positive on his host in Seattle, meaning the police have potentially been executing human beings. This has now become a huge ethical issue. Um, this has also caused him to figure out that somebody else he knows and has retested is actually an android, which they admit to. Of course, then this now comes into the whole thing where now the they're questioning Deckard. And they do not, and they don't recognize him as a bounty hunter. And they're now detaining him and asking him a bunch of crazy questions as well. This is now, and then there's the whole thing just evolves into some craziness. He is, he's now learning that he's, uh, he's not only surrounded by androids, but he seems to have this ability to empathize with certain androids. He's starting to understand why they're fugitives and what's going on with all of this. But he's still trying to figure out his missions. He's now getting all of his targets taken out. Um, He doesn't really feel he needs to do any kind of testing beforehand. There's also a kind of a sad part because he ends up being able to afford a real animal for his wife, but it ends up getting killed. That's the whole undercurrent of this, of these books is that it's the occupation and ownership of a real living thing amongst all of this speculation of, is this a real or a fake human? That we're doing the same thing with, is this a real or a fake animal? Once he's achieved his target, he just wants to come back to something real, and that's now been taken away. Now he tries to go find something to replace it, but it's just another cheap imitation. It's just a robot. And then you have, I guess, the idea is that when everything in your life's artificial, do you still have the same empathy and care for it as if it were real? That's one of the weird messages that I took away from this. The whole point of the title, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Because humans do. Humans dream of their fake animals in this world. Do androids dream of having their own pets? Do the androids have pets? If so, would they dream about them? Do they have the capacity to dream? 
this is what I wanted to segue into as well, which is good because the, as the last thing that I'll talk about right now, Mrs. Davis is a brand new show that just came out that talks all about AI and algorithms and their influence on our lives and how insidious they are now at this point. They talked about in Blade Runner, it's the replacement of religion with an empty box <laughs> with kind of just like an empty thing in place of spirituality. Not like I'm saying that religion and spirituality are the answers or anything, but I don't necessarily think the answer is creating artificial intelligence to distract us and, and, and consume our lives to the point where we would be unethical and risk our relationships. That's where we're going into the, with this last reference. Obviously you might be wondering, Oh, you haven't mentioned like the matrix. You haven't mentioned like, all these other movies. I feel like the matrix at this point is pretty straightforward. Yes. It's a very big pop culture reference. At this point, you guys all know what the plot of the matrix is and what the matrix is about. Yes. It does involve AI. It does involve the pre-written computer code that they're changing and finding new updates and, and hardware for and interacting with it because Neo's the one he can transcend the limitations of the code and all this stuff. Yes. I all very that very much that at the same time, the spirit of AI, it's got to be a few different examples as well. That if you have any other questions as to my thought process on that's why I didn't really devote too much time to it. I feel like everybody knows about it. It's already a huge movie. I didn't really want to dwell on it, but I wanted to include it because it is important. That's another good example of spirituality and the religion seeping into the fusion of artificial intelligence. You like see the whole thing, oh, the chosen one sort of thing, and visiting an oracle, and kind of concept of just having faith in the power of yourself versus the power of the matrix sort of thing. Mrs. Davis last thing I want to talk about. This is a great show that I just binged recently. It's on Peacock aka Crave for those of you who are looking to watch. It really touches on all of these different themes. It's a very absurdist stream of consciousness type show. Explorations on secret societies, Illuminati, conspiracies, and just an in-depth look at the struggle of people to, I guess, assimilate and fit in versus listening to what's going on around you and doing what's right. So Mrs. Davis is the name of the all-powerful algorithm that exists in this version of life, is a powerful artificial intelligence that is responsible for this sort of social media app that everyone follows in this reality of this show. You've got people walking around fulfilling various quests. And if they fulfill a certain number of quests over time, then they get what's called their wing. They have any time they go somewhere out of their back or digitally added in wings that just stick with you and follow you around that you only get if you complete these tasks. Then if you don't want to complete the tasks and you want to jump the line and get your wings right away, you can, but you also get branded with this weird triangle tattoo barcode. And then anytime that they want, they can come and collect. They don't even get famous yet. And they're like, oh, come, time to collect now. 
And then we've got Sister Simone. Sister Simone is an alias. You've got somebody who's trying to escape from their past a little bit, find some anonymity in this coven. Sister Simone, I said coven, I meant convent. Oh my fucking god. (laughs) Simone is actually a nun in a convent. Unfortunately, there's a big push for Simone to be the one true person to find the Holy Grail in modern day times. Mrs. Davis is doing everything to find Simone and get her to talk to Mrs. Davis and go on her quest. Simone doesn't really mess with this app at all and thinks it's very stupid. She thinks that people are obsessed with it. It's a cult and wants nothing to do with it. She just wants to be a nun and make her jam and live in her convent in peace. But Mrs. Davis has other plans for Simone. Finally, Simone decides to agree because she's going to somehow get revenge on Mrs. Davis. Nobody really knows who controls Mrs. Davis, who runs Mrs. Davis. All people know is that whoever wants to get the app is has these little earbud, AirPod things that they wear. And then they'll talk to Mrs. Davis or they'll look on their phone and they'll get their quests and they'll talk to the, Mrs. Davis or other people or whatever. The thing is that Mrs. Davis has now taken over all of these AirPods of all the people that use the app. And any person she meets is getting a message to try and give to Simone to talk to Mrs. Davis. She keeps pushing them away until finally she goes of her own free will to this meeting spot and talks to this person who Mrs. Davis takes over their body through this earpod. Airbud, airpod thing, airbud. <laughs> It's a golden retriever in her ear and uh, with a basketball. Then finally, she reluctantly accepts this quest, but in the background, she's trying to figure out a way to get around it and get her revenge on Mrs. And she's moaning, bitching all the whole time about how it's such a fucking trope and such a huge cliche. You're sending me after the Holy Grail. This is stupid. This is far fetched. Why would you make me do this? Why would you? ruin anything good that I had left in my life in order to reach me to give me this message. She 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 finds out that through this quest, there's a lot more to it than what she initially thought. That she's not going to be the only one searching for it, of course, and she's going to have to fight off a bunch of people. Her main goal at this point is not so much to get the grail, but to destroy the algorithm. Through this, there's a lot of flashbacks and flash forwards. There's a lot of jumping through time. There's a lot of very suspension of disbelief moments in the show. It's a really good show, but there's a lot that goes on and there's a lot of really cool visual stuff that happens. But one very good one to watch, the bonkers, weird quest that she's going on is tying together the technology and the religion. It, I suppose it does demonize AI in a way. Talks of, it, it goes back to that sort of trope of the whole I am robot thing. Another movie that I, I will mention briefly add this sort of example. The idea of an algorithm becoming big, bigger than itself that it then turns on the very people that it was made for. 
Um, but in this case, it's also Mrs. Davis doesn't really have to do that because the app is so addicting that people will just turn on each other themselves and will do anything unquestioning for the AI. Whereas now we've seen in the past where AI has done things unquestioningly for humans or not even for humans, but just due to the nature of their programming. We now see an AI where the tables have turned and people are being controlled by it 100%. To the point where they would give their lives, sell their souls for this tattoo just so they can have a pair of wings, a shiny wings that grow out of their back on a social media app. It's crazy. The extent to which people in the show will bend over backwards for Mrs. Davis for this AI. And then what happens if the AI rebels? Is this what it looks like? It can look like a lot of different things. There's this movie called I Am Robot. It's set in 2035. And it's focusing around very highly intelligent robots that filling up all of the different job requirements for people in the world. The main point of this movie is that it focused on three, the three roles of robotics. And this is the three roles that they program these robots to live by. And this movie, iRobot, was based after Isaac Asimov's 1950 short story collection. It's from... It is named after it, but it's actually more based on a, a original story, original screenplay as well. As I said, there's these robots that are living and working amongst humans. They operate among three rules to keep humans safe: the three laws of robotics. This is also a set of rules devised by science fiction author Isaac Asimov. They were introduced in the collection iRobot under the short story Runaround. The laws are a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. And the Xeroth Law, a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. That's the rewording of the first law, honestly. These are the organizing principle within this robot series of stories. Now, in iRobot, the issue here is that a, the robots are coming under scrutiny with some of their actions. They're now being investigated and prosecuted by the police department. It's the year 2035. Del Spooner is a homicide detective at the Chicago Police Department. He's suffering from a little bit of Mando syndrome in the sense that he is very distrustful of robots. It was because when he was younger, he was saved and someone else died. He doesn't really understand why the robot decided to do that. He doesn't really seem to get that robots are programmed that way. Anyway, there's a very famous co-founder of U.S. Robotics who is found dead. They fell out of a window. 
and they requested that this particular detective be assigned to their case. The police are saying that it's a suicide, but the based on this note, Del Spooner is skeptical, and they, they reluctantly allow him to start investigating, and so they start questioning the security footage that was found, and then all the way up to the actual robot themselves. Then finally, they realize that this is all part of the little mini robot uprising. Technically, it's this robot that they find to potentially be responsible is built with higher grade materials. They have a secondary processing system allowing them to ignore the three laws, which I guess nobody realized. Which the reason that they're putting this in place is very specific for them to be able to disregard it is now, of course, very dangerous to the rest of the human population. They describe it as this one robot says has determined that humans, if left unchecked, will eventually cause their own extinction. That this robot's evolved interpretation of the three laws requires them to control humanity and to sacrifice some for the good of the entire race. And then there's a whole murder fight, murder robot fights. There's all the decommissioned robots are all turning towards him at the end, fulfilling this image that he had in a dream some while ago in the movie. Now, there are his comparison with the novels and the premise of robots turning on their creators, of course, originating in RUR. This is a big trope in AI, the AI turning against the user. There's a huge tendency in pop culture to portray AI as menacing, there's a lot more that a lot of authors and people are trying to find nowadays to involve robotics with characters that are battling anti-robot prejudice and that they potentially have. So you see this in Westworld as well. You have the whole robots going rogue and you have others realizing that they don't have the rights that they should and that they feel used and that they want something different. Westworld, which I'll also just touch on briefly. I have it written down here, actually. It's alternate reality world where it's an amusement park where anybody who's a guest is human. And then anybody who works there is a robot. It starts out as the setting would be the Wild West. It's got saloons and brothels and people on horseback, cowboys and, and stuff like that. Um, famously has Evan Rachel Wood, Thandie Newton, and Anthony Hopkins. Oh, and Ed Harris is in it as well, one of the main characters. Executive produced by J.J. Abrams. And it's a um, Wild West-themed park, and there's a, a big company that's operating these theme parks. One of them happens to be an American Old West-themed one called Westworld. The hosts are supposed to be programmed to fulfill the guests' every desire. 
they will engage in and be, or be subjected to any kind of violent and sexual activity as well. However, their programming makes it impossible for them to harm any living thing or have the guests to be harmed. So they have actually different updates that they do in behind the scenes on all of these robots as well. They actually have an update that does cause some hosts, specifically in this case, our main characters, to gain consciousness of their previous erased memories and then become sentient. Then, of course, this mysterious guest shows up trying to find this maze or labyrinth that he believes somebody who developed the game left for him and he starts going crazy and starts killing and injuring people and stuff like that. There's other people in the show going on side quests. There's a few different seasons of the show, but spoilers, but it's been out for a little while. The world gets thrown into chaos, starts an extinction level war between liberated humans and hosts all across the globe. At the end of the series, as humanity is on the brink of true extinction, she tries to some the character one character tries to simulate one last game to determine if any part of human sentience may yet be preserved in a new world. This is uh, based upon a film of the same name, written and directed by Michael Crichton, and loosely upon there's a 1976 sequel, Future Worlds. That is where that basis of that comes from. You've got human guests taking advantage of a robot host. And people are going to this Westworld to do everything from drink and gamble to sleep with prostitutes to set buildings on fire, rob banks. Dude, I'll do all this crazy shit. And it's completely allowed. And uh, this is going back to the whole thing where it's, in a way, you have the human element controlling the narrative of the AI. People want to be entertained in a Western-themed theme park. No matter how the AI thinks or feels, hopefully they don't, because that's what we're going to be doing every single day, all the time, every day. Then in this case, you find that there's latent memories that are stuck that then come out. And that is now affecting everything to do with this quest that you have, I guess, in a way. This example is not exactly a quest, but. And going back to Mrs. Davis, um, you've got the whole thing where it's. As we're going through the show, Simone, a.k.a. Lizzie, is recovering memories from things that she's repressed for so long remembering what her family was and taking into account major losses and not really being able to process that trauma properly she's realizing that realizing that nobody she knows she can really trust and and just that she's surrounded by a lot of really stupid people. 
<laughs> like, it's, Mrs. Davis has a lot of the same stereotypes and tropes that your AI movies or show is going to have, but they definitely are tongue-in-cheek about it in terms of um, making sure you realize that they know it's absurd, they know it's crazy, but you're going to love every minute of it. Mrs. Davis really talks to our modern need to just constantly be on social media all the time and our constant need for validation and approval mixed with sort of the um, the way that they infuse the spiritual and religious iconography in there and how they introduce certain very important characters, Jesus, for example. And just how they portray Mrs. Davis as this sort of monolith and this really scary thing. Then in contrast, Lizzie's just like a normal person. Just trying to do what she needs to do without the interference of an all-pervasive artificial intelligence. That's really one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is that people really want to interact with AI very much on their own terms. They, They don't want to have it be too controlling, but they don't want to have it be non-existent. It's very much like having your cake and eating it too, but I, I do understand the sentiment. Like you want to have it be so seamlessly infused in your life that you don't really know or remember it's there sometimes. It's, even though there's a, a key reason as to why they were drawn and why they were called, maybe that reason is nothing else except being superficial. It, the issue with it continuously coming after her is that because it's an AI, it's it's always stuck with you if they really want it to be. What I really, really liked about Mrs. Davis too was the use of the songs evoke a very retro feel, a retro environment for those conversations about religion. It was cool to see back where everything came from in the passages of time that happened in the show. There's a couple other examples that I wanted to give for AI. There's two very recent popular examples. Marvel, as we've seen, has taken over the box office, owned by Disney now, looking to expand into Infinity War keep making movies the franchise is never going to stop now we've seen within marvel a lot of really cool examples of technology jarvis is one of the examples that i wanted to talk about right now if you've seen the iron man offshoot of marvel movies or any of the avengers movies you've probably seen jarvis make an appearance there are probably a couple other examples of artificial intelligence within Marvel movies, but we're going to focus on Jarvis and their influence on the franchise there that as an example of artificial intelligence for us with pop culture and explore that Marvel does use AI normally as of course, most other situations to help all of the superheroes, most specifically Tony Stark, AKA Iron Man. This is part of a bigger overarching intelligence system called Ultron. 
there's a lot of different factors that go into the making of this artificial intelligence by this super intelligent human being, obviously very similar to previous examples of artificial intelligence sort of modeling after a very congenial sort of Butler-esque voice with that sort of mannerism as well. There are some other examples of different artificial intelligence robots in the Marvel Universe. We've got different ones in X-Men, such as Danger. We've got the Doombots from Fantastic Four, as well as Herbie. There's a lot of acronyms you'll notice with some of these AIs. Herbie as a highly engineered robot built for interdimensional exploration is the acronym for that AI. We've got different things in Spider-Man, such as the Living Brain. They're named by the scientist called Dr. Petty, which I live for that. And I guess you could argue that Doc Ock's setup could be considered a form of AI, sort of more like a mecha or like an AI fusion, I suppose, since his brain is controlling a lot of what goes on with the extended arm appendages that he has, but there's a whole thing where it is a separate robotic unit. Not a little bit on the fence with that one, but for the most part, we're going to talk about Jarvis. What's important to note is that the uh, character of Jarvis as a disembodied sort of voice within the computer sort of system of Ultron then turns into a physical form later in the form of vision. We'll talk about that. The difference between AI is taking on certain human qualities, but not others. As we've seen with the Siri and Alexa example, we've got this as a sort of a non-tangible voice-only intelligence that we interact with, but then later it takes on an actual humanoid persona. These are based on the characters of Edwin Jarvis Homer. This is directly based on a butler of the Stark family. This is an artificial intelligence that controls the Iron Man armor. The acronym that they previously had in the Marvel comics was Homer. I'm going to double see. Yeah, Homer appears in both Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. In both movies, they all appear as well, voiced by Tom Kane. Homer is short for heuristically operative matrix emulation rostrum. This was created by Tony Stark for assistance within Stark Enterprises, first appearance in 1993. And Edwin Jarvis is appearing in 1990s heavily in media adaptations of Iron Man and Avengers. But in other media here, that's more recent. There's one really one appearance in Avengers Endgame by with James Darcy playing Edwin Jarvis. They've been in a couple movies as well. This is the actual real person. They've appeared in a few of the TV versions of Marvel the most notable being Agent Carter, depicted as Howard Stark's butler at the time in that version. 
Oh, as well as an assistant to Peggy Carter on missions. This was the main inspiration for this Jarvis AI system that we later see. Jarvis stands for just a rather very intelligent system. Just a rather very intelligent system. This is now voiced by Paul Bettany, who then later goes on to play Vision as the physical role. We've seen this kind of realized in different kind of iterations in the comics, as well as the TV movie versions and video games. We see this in the Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, seen in Spider-Man as well. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, modeled after the Homer AI or sort of idea of AI from the comics, Jarvis is trying to avoid similarities to Alfred from Batman. And they didn't want to go with the human route, I suppose. They wanted to make it a little bit more distinct. Therefore, they made it an AI as well. Paul Bettany admits that he initially did this role of Jarvis as a favor for Jon Favreau. Didn't really know much about the character. Kind of just was winging it, which is hilarious. But we see them making the film debut in 2008. From there appears in a bunch of different Iron Man and Avengers movies. And Jarvis appears in one of the attractions to do with the Avengers at Disneyland. We see most specifically in Avengers Age of Ultron, Jarvis is seemingly destroyed by Ultron. Ultron is an artificial intelligence conceived by Tony Stark, Bruce Banner. Tony Stark being Iron Man, Bruce Banner being the Incredible Hulk. They're heading a peacekeeping program. I'm assuming this was Bruce Banner's idea, not Tony Stark's. Subsequently taking the form of a sentient android overwhelmed with a god complex. Determined to pacify the Earth by eradicating humanity. It's giving Thanos a little bit. A lot of bit. Stark Banner's research on the Mind Stone, one of the Infinity Stones, the groundwork for Ultron's genesis, along with Stark's belief that Ultron would be the Avengers' permanent solution to maintaining peace in our time. Once born, Ultron, however, being activated and infected by the Mind Stone, quickly surmises that humanity's continued survival throughout human history is a result of overcoming ongoing successions of crises. Thus, he determines to inflict an extinction-level event to ensure the people of Earth have the will to evolve. Ultron views the Avengers as a hindrance to humanity's evolution. Their extinction is a main protocol of this AI. Ultron keeps updating the physical form of itself using a vibranium and possesses the ability to manifest itself within Stark's Iron Legion droids, Ultron Sentries. So there's such an overreaching ability for this AI to control many other things within Stark Industries, things that previously were assisting the Avengers. Now it's our turning against them. Of course, we've seen this time time again with AI where it's going to become too self-aware, too intelligent for its own good, more intelligent than we can fathom or control will then start to turn on us. Ultron is voiced by James Spader, which is awesome. Then we have in an alternate universe, Ultron voiced by Ross Marquand, different person, transfers his AI into the not yet born Vision's body, defeats the Avengers, eradicates most of Earth's life forms, kills Thanos, takes the Infinity Stones, using those to eradicate all other life in the universe. The Guardians of the Multiverse kick Ultron's ass due to Doctor Strange's immense Doctor Stephen Strange Supreme specifically. Then 
we've got Black Widow, a.k.a. Natasha Romanoff, Captain Peggy Carter, who managed to take down the AI. This AI, they realize it, it contains a copy of Arnim Zola's consciousness. Subsequently, Zola destroys Ultron from inside his body, takes over it, then starts fighting Killmonger over the Infinity Stones until both are trapped in a pocket dimension by Strange Supreme and the Watcher. As you go through some of the different things with Vision, you'll see that Scarlet Witch gets brought into that as well. There was a whole show with a spinoff thing with Scarlet Witch and Vision. Lots of different kind of crossovers between Jarvis slash Ultron slash Vision that you'll see among all of the different Marvel spinoff things to do with film, TV, comics. Jarvis is a pretty important part of this, even culminating within Jarvis slash Ultron as a title character for one of the main Marvel movies, the main Avengers movies. We're touching on a lot of different themes of AI used to enhance even superheroes who are people who already have access to such unlimited power in the form of special uniforms and suits. They're imbued with special powers. They still use AI too, because even superheroes need some assistance with directions, with remembering dates, with pulling up information. They never think that it's going to turn on them either because they think they've got it all figured out. But sure enough, there's that same fear that we see in some of these movies where the AI is going to take hold, that being a brand new enemy. As if the heroes don't have enough enemies to fight already, they've now got the very thing that one of them created to help them all as an enemy now. We have that as a great example. I just wanted to... I'm pretty big into Marvel. Something I got more passionate about recently, but that Marvel has done a lot more in terms of political and social references to things within the franchise. Of course, AI is no exception. An exploration of a what-if scenario. That it was even in that What If show. There's a Disney Plus animated series, What If, that the Jarvis and Ultron were in as well. In the film Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Great. That's wrapping it up on Jarvis slash Ultron. This is a bit of a weird example. I wanted to bring it up because it is relevant. It at least uses AI as a a metaphor, as a symbolism. It Maybe if it's not necessarily a real AI, because it's still unclear to me how much of what happened in this movie actually happened and how much of this movie was taking place within the mind or suggestions based on philosophy. How do you see the movie as it actually happening or sort of a surrealist take on life? Of course, everything, everywhere, all at once. The reference to artificial intelligence as a tool of accessing the mind, time travel, the course of our own destinies. This is a very intrinsic part of this movie. This is what activates the main character, Evelyn's ability to see the course of her own life and the lives of others unfold is having access to this sort of AI apparatus that they are locked into, do certain specific things in order to activate it. Just the little details of the movie, just the quirky choose your own adventure. 
references that they add in. There's an AI link in terms of editing for this movie because apparently the film had a lot of issues with tight deadlines. A small team of visual effects artists, they used AI tools to save a lot of time with editing. They're pretty open about that. Evan Halleck is the main visual effects artist that's referenced with this story. What I'm mainly focusing on is not really the generative AI or AI editing tools, but the movie itself, Different. if you haven't seen the movie, there's going to be spoilers. The idea is that Evelyn gets a chance to access different dimensions or different timelines and versions of herself within the artificial intelligence headband, headphone sort of thing that they put on her. As we've seen in other examples, we've got an outside technical sort of tool or piece of equipment or a piece of electronics that you interact with in order to activate the artificial intelligence. We see this in real life from our little speakers that we use to speak to our home management AIs, GPS, things like that. We've got this kind of as a no exception. We have, we've also, as I mentioned with Mrs. Davis, where we have, there's an ear piece, an AirPod that you have. That's what's helping you to access the artificial intelligence. If you, if you're thinking in terms of mech suits or, or equipment that you wear, there's lots of different examples of how there's artificial intelligence that's separate from itself works independently and there's artificial intelligence that almost becomes enmeshed with us we have she's living this very mundane life as a laundromat owner and she's dealing with sort of not having a great relationship with her husband and he wants a divorce not a great relationship with her daughter because her the grandfather are having some issues with taking into account the daughter wants to take a different path in life. The daughter happens to be queer, dating somebody who is outside of their culture as Chinese Americans. There's a big soul-searching thing that Evelyn has to do in terms of both her own life, how her life interacts with the people that she loves. There's the grandfather that lives with them, seeing that sort of generational knowledge and responsibility, the idea of open versus closed minds, narrow minds versus open minds is a big topic in this movie. AI as a tool to unlock and expand people's minds is an approach that they take within this movie. What you find out within the movie is that Evelyn's husband is some kind of secret spy during the course of them trying to get more money to expand their business, running into a bit of trouble with the IRS, she finds out, we're not sure if this is her mind dealing with the stress of the trauma, or if this is just a sort of artistic tool that they're using to explain the mind-bending psychedelic concepts of time and different dimensions, different timelines. One of the easiest ways, I guess, that they saw they could do this was employ the use of an artificial intelligence to explain how to access lock into 
your mind's higher potential. She's given this AI, she's given some instructions on how to use it in order to access it. She's given a little set of instructions. She's given tasks, little things that she has to do in order to make the AI activate, get her to bounce from the place that she's in into the different timeline or the different dimension and travel there. It's all being controlled behind the scenes by the husband as this double agent spy, a few other secondary characters who are able to triangulate her location, and get her to jump. There's all of these really suspenseful moments where she just jumps just at the last minute where she's going to get in trouble or something, of course. These little things on the side of her head, and then they have like a red light, a yellow light, or a green light. And the red light means that she can't jump. The yellow light means that she'll still jump, but she won't land in the spot where she's supposed to. Then the green light means that she's successfully locked on to where they want her to jump to. For example, there's a scene where she can't jump unless she tells Jamie Lee Curtis's character that she loves her. She has to mean it or else the jump won't work, which that's all these really funny things of examples with the AI. It reminds me quite a bit of Mrs. Davis, actually, that it's getting her to have to perform some sort of mental or physical trial before what they want the AI to do. It employs a lot in terms of this sort of crack team of AI experts, if you will, but they're very much at the mercy of the user of the AI in terms of the success of it. They all have to work together in order to effectively use it. And because goal of her using this device, connecting with all of these different parallel versions of herself in different timelines in the universe is that she is trying to stop a powerful being from destroying this multiverse. Her current version of herself, all their potential past, present and future versions, as well as everyone that she knows, loves, cares about. These manifest in the form of her daughter, her grandfather, or sorry, her father, the daughter's grandfather. The daughter is this shape-shifting, outfit-changing super being who has decided that because the universe, the multiverse, everything that they've come to know means nothing and nothing matters, there's no point that it needs to be eradicated. It takes the form of this black hole, but it ta- the black hole is in the form of an everything bagel. And this is Evelyn's quest to both defeat this horrible enemy, but this is a metaphor for her having a better relationship with her daughter. If she can relate to this, if she can defeat her demons, just facing her defacing her demons and fighting her demons the is the takeaway from that her daughter joy who takes the form of alpha joy the verse jumping talk to it as the alpha verse which is the main universe that they're in there's like an alpha evelyn alpha waymond alpha deirdre alpha joy all of the different characters they all exist in their main alpha verse but then they're time jumping universe jumping into different areas and the whole movie culminates at the yearly Chinese New Year party that they hold at their laundromat that they invite all their customers 
different people they know too. This is where you see the, what's playing out in real life that because obviously everyone else around Evelyn doesn't know or understand that she's jumping and dealing with this other shit in a parallel timeline exactly at the same time as she's dealing with her alpha universe. They are like, what the heck's going on with you? Not realizing that the, her erratic behavior, the thing she's saying and doing is because she's time jumping, which of course we don't know if that's really time jumping or if this is some sort of mental break. It It's absurdist. We're supposed to understand it as it's actually taking place as it's being explained. However, that may not actually be the case. It's supposed to be an example of using these as allegories to how you were supposed to exist in regular life. It's exploring the concepts of what is the meaning of life, the nature of the universe. They even make a, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference, which we pointed it out, we saw this in the CinemaSins recap of everything everywhere all at once, where they're both like, all oh, this googly eyes thing is fucking dumb. Oh, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference early on. Lame. It was just funny, but it's that's amazing that they made a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference, because that's very much the spirit of this movie in this episode. Hitchhiker's Guide in the sense of examining big concepts of philosophy, theology, as well as science fiction. But we are viewing it through the lens of comedy, absurdism, which is exactly what they do with this movie. And it's done in such a fun, whimsical, and brilliant way. They incorporate not only so much of the characters and their personal culture with the the Chinese New Year celebration, as I said, with the references to Kung Fu, a reference to Michelle Yeoh and her amazing career as well. And uh, of course, there's a very pivotal timeline divergence where they show Evelyn's character is what would have happened if she had Michelle Yeoh's life, if she had become a big celebrity, if she hadn't gone off with the love of her life at a young age, moved to America and opened a, a shitty failing laundromat, she had become a big Kung Fu star TV and movie personality runs into her husband, her could have been husband years later doing pretty well for himself seeing my life is great without you, but we could have been together. It would have been great as well because is it, what is, where do you find meaning? What is important to you that you would make certain decisions that could fundamentally change the, destiny of your life and the lives of others. The AI provides all the characters in her life to have their value appear in a way. It causes Evelyn to reassess what she's been placing her value in, including has she been placing enough value in herself. There's a big scene as well with that where finally her daughter is allowed to have value and validation in her life as being seen as lesbian as somebody who is trying hard to connect even as a young person being different generation with the rest of her family who doesn't really seem to want to let her in. Then there's the sense of agency that the, that Evelyn has as a daughter as well, always living in her grandfather's shadows, having to take care of this person who's always been very disapproving of her, and her decisions yet needs her and relies on her. And so, becoming that that scene where she says 
I don't need you to be proud of me because I am proud of myself. That's powerful as well. Just have that as an example for her daughter and her family. And then, of course, not to mention having that reconnection with her husband. Seeing that, seeing how the reasons why people want to separate is, of course, just lack of communication, lack of understanding, just getting wrapped up in sometimes seeing what's in front of you. The pres- Living for the present is all well and good, but sometimes you get wrapped up in what's going on that you miss everything else. You miss the big picture, which can involve a lot of very key members of your life that want nothing but the best for you. In terms of artificial intelligence, that's what we want out of our artificial intelligence. We want it to have nothing but the best intentions for us, for our lives. In this case, in this sense, this is a more positive example of how artificial intelligence could be used. Of course, this is a very loose, open-ended example of it. It's I, I find it very similar to, yeah, as I said, Mrs. Davis, The Matrix comes to mind. It's accessing through your brain some kind of access point, cranial access point, to unlock more of yourself as the intelligence versus the intelligence itself doing as much of the work. It provides a very positive example of using it to provide more insight for yourself in your life rather than like to to accomplish a task to make our lives a little easier. It's asking us, what is even life? What even is this life? That's important to know. Yeah, I just think that because it's a good fusion of AI, just the that are much bigger than that, it's a great example to include. Perhaps that could be, or they're even talking now about how they've developed AIs that can read minds, retain access, different memories of people. It's very possible that that is something coming up on the horizon anytime soon. We could be actually seeing this technology available to us sooner than we think. The ability to time travel, the ability to at least, not if not physically, that, but mentally, access potential different realities. It's wild to consider. As rigid as we think AI is, because it's changing the neuroplasticity of things, both in our brains, AI, if we're mimicking that as ourselves, that is very much a possibility. It's a lot more fluid than we even considered in the beginning. In terms of the longevity of lifespan or passage of time or something like that, those are still a few areas where they struggle. I was going through typing in like a bunch of random crap into search engines and seeing what happened. Just to get a sense of how it worked. Ultimately, what people really crave in artificial intelligence is the ability to tell it what to do at any time and just never be anything except in a service role. Intelligence is more than just a series of zeros and ones. It's more than just code. And your, your intelligence is more than just this robot was designed, which again, a robot is not, uh, an android is neither smart nor dumb. It's as smart or as dumb as its user or whoever programmed and designed it. You've got all of this intelligence here that may be faulty. And on top of that, there, if you're lacking the emotional element, the ability to have nuance and context and 
and empathy for people, that's never going to work. Take the suggestions of using artificial intelligence. I certainly, of course, wouldn't be too scared about an AI uprising. It's certainly not going to be the AI that do it themselves. It's going to be some rich fucks that reprogram them to take us over and we won't have any say. The stupid police robot police dogs that they're rolling out in the States. The physical manifestation of weaponizing AI for as long as they can possibly do because they'll in the end it'll make it more money locking more people up and, and being able to put it into the military industrial complex and then putting it into occupied countries there's such a thing as being too intellectually informed to the point where you're either taking things too literally or you have an inability to see the forest through the trees. That whole saying, you can't really you can't really connect with a user on the level that they need you to connect with them if you don't have a sense of how to respond to certain speech patterns and you know what an idiom is and what a slang term is all of those things could make an ai more relatable and then what are the ais i'm only talking about english speaking ais because that's what i use but what are ai programs in other countries and do our ai is ai use going to account for cultural differences for different languages and dialects can you have can you code switch with an ai can you um have ebonics with an ai can you asl use sign language with an ai and i ai is going to remember your birthday and suggest a bunch of cool things to do in different presents but unless you tell it to it's not going to remember to have a conversation with you about certain relatives that you had and whatever, unless you already gave it that information. With AI in pop culture, there's so many instances of it that we've already seen as both good and bad things, and things that maybe as portrayed in the media aren't exactly accurate. There's that. When you have all things considered, artificial intelligence it's really ushering in this new wave of, of being able to complete work better and faster, but there should be transparency in when it's used and we should really be careful of it falling into the wrong hands. Those are really my only concerns. It could have the potential for bad stuff to happen, but only again, depending on user type of user and user intent. I would really like to see a future where AI is a lot better um, connected to the human experience that maybe even in the future, humans become a little more self-reliant again and not, not dependent on the AI as well. It's like, what if it stops working one day and then you're just, who, who, what disembodied robot voice where you're going to have to talk to you now? You have to go talk to a real live person. I know you don't want to do that. I know it's scary. But 
instead of some artificial intelligence sometimes. Maybe just some intelligence, IRL, organic, analog intelligence for us. It's a little bit of refreshing. That whole saying, go touch some grass. Yeah, sometimes the AI can go touch the grass. But are they really ever going to understand what it feels like to go out and touch grass? That's just as a silly, dumb example. But one of the few things we have left that differentiates us from artificial intelligence that sensory moment, that personal question-asking, small-talk moment. That's one I'm really struggling for. That's probably going to be good. With the struggles come the answers. I honestly think that this was a great option for so many different characters to look into, so many questions to ask, and things to explore. This was a perfect little ending to my month. And getting a chance to not only record this episode, but try some new things out with the podcast. Using AI, actually being able to say that it was part of my podcast process is extremely meta. A little weird, but very cool. So I just want to thank once again, all of the different AI components of this week's podcast that I was able to use and create a new kind of experience might still continue with using it. It is helping a lot, but at least this time I got to actually test it out and give you guys a real sense of how it works in real life and take it back into that sort of media pop culture place that I usually live at. But these last couple episodes have been going into the gray area, the blurred lines as much as I hate to use that term, where it comes from reality and where it flows into entertainment. Artificial, much intelligence. Very droid. Wow. Okay, everybody. This is the end of the episode for this week. Thank you for joining me. I'm hoping that in maybe the next couple episodes, I'll have some guests back hosting with me. That would be great. But being solo is cool, too. I really haven't minded being solo. Going forward, though, it's been a while since I've had some guests on the show. That's long overdue. We'll keep you posted on the next topic. Also incorporate some of my new partnerships. There's going to be not only Love Shop, but hopefully a couple other places as well that will have some different ads and reviews and discussions on the podcast very soon. I look forward to seeing you all again, as I hope you are me, and look forward to this episode dropping very soon. And I hope you enjoy this one in the meantime. I thank you once again for visiting me in the Fantasy Tavern on my last little sip here. I bid you good evening as we set up the music to head out of here. Blast off into our beds, which is where I am going right now after this. Make sure to thank your AIs. Make sure to say thank you and good night so they don't come back and get you later. <laughs> Just a hot tip for me. Trust me. And I will see you next time on Fantasy Tavern. Until then, bye!